0: So we've had the first round with Casey Anthony knocking it out of the park. But will today's contender knock her out of the park? It's part two of Battle of the Psycho Bitches. This is Jody Arias. And welcome to Enter the Dark. I am Jan. With me as always is the love machine himself, Les. How's it going? I'm all good, man. Or as the ladies like call him, what are you doing in my bushes?
1: Also Captain Rape Eyes. is back. Is he it's back, back now? It's back. Oh, good, good, good. I'm it's glad back. it's back. Red. Rape Eyes intensify. <laughs>
0: so yeah, it's part two of Battle of the Psycho Bitches. I hope you all enjoyed Casey Anthony, because today we've got a worthy contender of... Who could be a bit more psycho? It's Jodie Arias. But before we kick off, let's say hello to all of our patrons. Who pay us enough money to say hello to? We have Hannah Blue Harrington, who is the most insane, brilliant person ever for helping me do this. Because she and me have done over 100 hours of research on Jodie Arias. I am fucking sick of Jodie Arias. We have our classy lady, Amanda Champagne. Our Swiss God, Swiss Phil. Amy, Emma and Jet Coleman. Sas... Sasa, 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 Sassy, Sasha Demp- Johnson, Larry Lisa Dempsey, Marie T. Jensen, Casey the Cannibal, Misty Day, Becky Louise, and a new patron supporter, Izzy from The Clink. Great podcast. Go and listen to The Clink. They're awesome. They're just like us. They make fun of everyone. Welcome. I hope you're all okay. You're all having a good time. Anyway, enough of that. Let's get into it. Jodie Arius, Les, what do you know about Jodie? Besides all the naked photos I've been sending you of her.
1: Thanks for him, by the way.
0: Yep, yeah, no problem.
1: Gets me through the cold and lonely nights.
0: You've been studying a butthole quite a lot. It's
1: an interesting butthole, isn't it? It is,
0: yeah. Or as, um, who was it who said it? Uh, um, Cleo, who subscribes to us on Patreon. I sent her the naked pictures because she said she'd never seen him, And she said, Jesus Christ, with a clip that big, no guy could miss it. You
1: really couldn't miss that huge
0: but there is a theory that
1: shit from space yeah but
0: there is a theory that um which is the weirdest theory ever that she's actually hermaphrodite and that um clitoris is a penis it's a little willy yeah and (laughs) it's literally made by people who've never seen a vagina before in their lives some sort of incel who's like no 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 because this looks like a penis and this bit here could be testicle, and it's like, it's not, it's just a vagina. It's
1: just a vagina, and that's a clitoris. Yeah, it's... That's yeah. all, mate. Like, get a life. Yeah, and, and... a better grasp of anatomy.
0: And don't go shooting up schools or Taco Bells. But, let's get into it. So, Jodie Ann Arias. She was born on the 9th of July, 1980, in Salinas, California, to William Bill Arias and Sandra Sandy. Arius. Sandy Sandra, Sandy Sandra, and William Bill. <clears throat> so Bill and Sandy. She was William
1: a... Bill. Like that's just going to be Bill Bill.
0: No, you know that's what they call him. In, in inverted commas.
1: But like like yeah, William quotation. Bill. Yeah. Like that's
0: yeah. thing. Like I call you Les. I don't call you Leslie.
1: True, but it, it, this is a weird one, Like, isn't it? It's like surely you're just shorten oh. William to Will, not oh. Bill. Well...
0: Well, I met a guy called Bill once. He he was my boss at a pub. I always used to call him Billiam. Billiam. Yeah, I was like, Billiam. There we go. Anyway, yeah, she she was apparently a pretty child who was described as having an impish grin and a naturally tan complexion. That came from Bill's Mexican ancestry and Sandy had German and English ancestry. So, you know, nice bit of Nordic thing going on there for her. She had a happy child. (laughs) Sorry, I just lost my space. <laughs> nice. It was the Nordic nice bit. Nice,
1: but Nordic, you know.
0: She had a happy childhood, and in court, she would describe her early upbringing as wholesome. She would say, "Until the about the age of seven, it was pretty ideal childhood. I have predominantly positive memories." That's nice, isn't
1: it? Predominantly positive.
0: Her parents worked in the food service industry and over the years owned several restaurants across California. When Jodie was young, her mother worked as a server at the family diner, and later Sandra became a dental assistant. She's moving up in the world. In Salinas, the family lived in a house at the end of a cul-de-sac. With a spacious backyard where Jodie and her brother Carl, who was two years younger, would climb trees and play with other neighbourhood children. She grew up roller skating, riding bikes and playing hopscotch and foursquare. Naturally soft-spoken, Jodie was described by family members as sweet and sensitive. Aww. She took piano lessons and played the flute. Yeah, that bet she did. <laughs> Early on, she was extraordinarily creative and showed a talent for art and enjoyed colouring and drawing. That's not really showing a talent for art. That's just colouring in and drawing stuff.
1: Like when I draw it, it seems to be a circle.
0: Yeah, you colour
1: it in. It's, it's like a face. And isn't? it's a face. It's like this is Daddy standing next to the house. Yeah. Anyway, house.
0: she said, When I was younger, I liked to colour with crayons. Well, of course you did, Jodie. You were a child. Yeah. I began to get into art. I would see art and it would fascinate me. I slowly began to practice doing that. What, drawing? What, fucking watercolours? Be this, more
1: specific, Jody. This is a fantastic origin story. i It not, is, I'm yeah. Not, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I mean, shit, Iron Man's you know. I know. Yeah. yeah.
0: Anyway, while she was generally a bright child, when it came to academics, she initially struggled, and the only person I think ever in the world, she was held back in kindergarten. <laughs> How the fuck do you fail kindergarten? It, uh, uh, we can't let Jodie go into the next year. Why? Well, she failed nap time. She sure. failed nap time, and also failed kooky time, and also plasticine time. What the how do you fail kindergarten
1: she ate the plasticine and she seemed um troubled always, by there, the cookie there's
0: always a kid who eats plasticine they just get sent up anyway not
1: not to the length that she ate plasticine clearly yeah, but, it's but, like it's coming out of her fucking ears
0: but how yeah that's just fucking like one of the play-doh things right, just... can... but um <laughs> sorry but how do you fail kindergarten <laughs> How do you fail kindergarten? I don't know, I think that's a fucking
1: achievement, though.
0: That They should move her up for failing. They should be like, well done. You well, were that shit. shit. <laughs> we're not having you again. Her family moved frequently when Jodie was young, which she said impacted her making any lasting friendships. I had a few friends, but I didn't really make a lot of close friends. It just seemed like I was constantly making friends and then moving away. It's because you
1: failed kindergarten, you fucking
0: dumbass. Yeah. I had a large circle of friends, but no one I was really close with. So you had friends. It's not yeah, like you were
1: a You were a social butterfly. Yeah. Like, you. that's,
0: that. some people are. You're not special. I'm,
1: she's already pissing me off.
0: Oh, a fucking hundred hours. Oh, I'm sick of her shit already. No wonder Travis dumped her. Come anyway, on. as a teenager, Jodie's talent for art blossomed. She began experimenting with oil paints and coloured pencils. In art class, she quickly mastered all artistic mediums and was usually the first student to complete an assignment, but not in kindergarten. <laughs> Apparently, she was very conscientious, very smart, and very hardworking and very skillful. said a former art teacher, Richard Rangel. Richard Rangel? Yeah. What a name. I know. She was very quiet and always seemed more mature than the rest of the kids. She had a maturity about her that was noticeable. Getting out on a limb here. I think he fucked it. Any teacher saying, you've got a maturity more than other kids, and it's quite noticeable. is on about your boobs have got big already. I feel you're an old soul. Yeah. <laughs> Would you like me to train you for the world ahead? You're going to have a lot of boyfriends, Jodie. I've seen how these films go. I've seen them on Pornhub. Next thing, a stepbrother's coming in and a mum showing her how to do it. But when it came to her art, Jodie didn't find much support at home. And while she was praised by classmates and art teachers, her parents were largely indifferent. She said, they didn't discourage me by any means, but they were lukewarm. Lukewarm. They weren't really moved by it. They never went out of their way to display it. So she's complaining now that when she did a picture, they didn't put it on the fridge. This is the level of high maintenance you're going to get with it.
1: They didn't put it on the... They put it on the fridge but they didn't put it at the top of the fridge.
0: No, her brother's potato prints are a little bit higher.
1: Yeah, fucking it's narcissist.
0: It's because he didn't fail kindergarten, Jody. As a child, Jody was disobedient, defying her parents' rules and often running away from home. But as she approached her teens, Jody's rebellion escalated towards emotional instability. She was prone to extreme irritability and bouts of anger, her moods shifting to an extent beyond that of a typical adolescent. When mad, she grew enraged, if sad, and she became inconsolable and many times threatened suicide. To control her misbehaviour, Jodie's parents became strict and sometimes used physical discipline. It began with spankings as a form of punishment, but as she got older, Jodie claimed it became increasingly brutal. "'My parents would spank or hit us as discipline. It seemed like at age seven it started to get a little more intense,' Jodie said. "'That's the first year my dad started using a belt.'"
1: he oh. needed to keep his fucking trousers <laughs> up. What's yeah. wrong
0: with you? No, not using a belt on her. Not like, I've gone from braces to a belt. Oh, right. See, it's context, isn't yeah. it? I, th- I mean, I think everybody there got the context, apart from you. Because I you're thought... some sort of old world fucking alien. Bill Arius was a martial artist and could bench press 500 pounds. And he would use his strength to push Jody into walls. Sandra carried a wooden kitchen spoon in her purse and used it to whack Jodie and her siblings when they misbehaved. These are lies. According to Jodie.
1: Yeah, these are lies. Nobody
0: carries a wooden purse, a wooden spoon in their purse. Or
1: bench presses that much just so that they can push their child into a wall. What if there wasn't a wall there? I could just imagine him, like, sort of like looking around the corner. It's like, oh, there's Jodie. There's a wall. (laughs) Wheek! Dad
0: push! <laughs> Got your bitch! Runs <laughs> off. Zoidberg in it. When the spoon wasn't available, Sandra would grab anything nearby to use as a weapon, at times leaving bruises and waltz. In her early teens, Jodie began responding to the discipline by inflicting violence on her parents. Sandra received the brunt of her daughter's rage. She and Jodie argued constantly, and at times Jodie would hit or slap her mum for no discernible reason. Just woke up. (laughs) Take that, bitch! (laughs) 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 When Jodie was 14, Bill and Sandra discovered something else disturbing. Their daughter was using drugs. On the roof of their house, they found marijuana plants growing out of Tupperware dishes. Alarmed, her father called the sheriff's department. Fucking narc. Yeah. Right. Never call the police on your kids. Ever. It's never a good thing. If I found my son, he's 14. If he was growing cannabis plants on our roof, I'd be like, one, how the fuck did you get up there? Two, why are you holding out on me? And three, you need a hydroponic fucking system so you get the buds. Yeah. Think about this, Bran. Jesus. Not
1: done your research.
0: You know, I know you're good at science, but you know, Jesus Christ. Failing on this, mate. Well, you get,
1: have you been on the Silk Road? It's not it's not a thing anymore, is it? The Silk Road.
0: I don't know. There's a load of... But now everyone on there is an FBI agent. <clears> it's not like the good old days where you could... Where you had the Dread Pirate, pirate Roberts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen that. I've seen that fucking documentary. That was a
1: good documentary. It about was, it. yeah. It was. I can't remember what it was called. The way they fucking got him, though, was like fucking harsh. Like That was practically fucking
0: entrapment. It was entrapment, but you know what I mean? Who gives a fuck? Not the FBI. After her arrest, mental health professionals struggled to diagnose Jodie as there were several potential diagnoses and she didn't quite fit either one. The most agreed upon diagnosis is narcissistic personality disorder.
1: See, I I just... Yeah, definitely. Though she doesn't
0: display all of the traits. Dr Dale Archer noted in Psychology Today that Jodie craves attention more than she fears death or punishment.
1: That's an interesting... Uh, those are interesting bedfellows, aren't
0: they? Yeah. But surprisingly, the incident seemed to spur a deep rift between Jodie and her parents. Jodie became distrusting and developed a habit of lying and hiding things from her parents. Gonna happen if you call the police on your fucking daughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's 14. You know, they don't trust you much anyway. Don't call the police on her. After that, something turned in her head, Bill said in 2008. We were nosy parents, and we were going to search everything, so she hid everything from us. She's never been honest with us since then.
1: You called the police on your daughter.
0: Yeah, you could have just gone, what the fuck are these, Jodie? You know, this is illegal. You could have had the police here. We could have lost our business. Damn it, Jodie. You're grounded. Pushy you in the wall. <laughs> but, that was a small one. That was a small one, because I'm, I'm not angry, just disappointed. While for Bill and Sandra the discipline was driven by concern, Jodie considered herself to be abused. She felt confused, betrayed, and grew bitter towards her parents. The contempt Jodie felt towards them would stay with her for most of her life. She said, As I got older, it would really make me mad. I understood why I was being punished, but I was just mad at them all the time because it hurt. It put a strain on our relationship. Well, you know, I'm not one for physical punishments, you know, but... Mental punishment can hurt Jodie, and you know, did you hurt your parents? You were slapping your mum, just going up fucking happy slapping it and running off. Whoop, 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 whoop. <laughs> <laughs> Over the course of Jodie's dating life, however, a disturbing pattern emerged. Jodie tended to lose herself in a relationship. Whoever she was dating at the time became her identity. While she had a few friends, Jodie seemed to need a partner to complete her and was rarely without a man in her life. All
1: codependent. Mm. Codependent.
0: In the summer of nineteen ninety-five, Eureka hosted the State Fair, which Jodie, then aged fifteen, attended with a few friends. In the crowd, she noticed a thin man with long, dark curly hair and a deep set brown eyes. He was dressed in 18th century gothic style in a black suit with a high collared shirt. This dude's fucking awesome. She learned the boy was an 18-year-old senior named Robert Juarez, who went by the name of Bobby. Right. Jody gave Bobby her phone number, and they began talking, and soon they were a couple. Each day on her lunch break, Jodie would leave campus and meet Bobby at the nearby USA gasoline station, which included an indoor arcade. Bobby would play video games, and he and Jodie would hold hands. Now, that's difficult, because you need two hands to play video games, but he's holding a hand with one. Maybe he was like fucking sick at Street Fighter, like. Or maybe she's linking him, and he's like got her hands on the on the fucking joystick. He's like, look, you're playing Jody, but he sounds fucking cool, doesn't he? He does. He's a fucking 18th century gothic vampire who works (laughs) in a gas station that has an arcade. (laughs) Unsurprisingly. Which pump? (laughs) Which pump do you want? Pump one. Uh, uh, uh. Uh, uh, uh. Pump two! (laughs) Uh, uh, uh. Three! Three gas pumps! But, unsurprisingly, Les, he had an interest in the occult. He was something of an oddity in the small California town. Because you don't get many gas station vampires in Eureka. Early on, Judy discovered he had some atypical beliefs. He had all sorts of wild ideas. He entertained the belief in vampires, she testified. He thought, let's go to San Francisco and see if we can find some real vampires so we could live together forever and be together forever. Why, why San Francisco I don't know. I'd, I'd think New Orleans. Yeah, I'd right. that'd
1: be where... Or if you're from New
0: Orleans, you, you call it New Orleans.
1: Aren't well, they like a fucking... Um... Like module called San Francisco by Night for Vampire the Masquerade that was quite popular back in those days. I don't Maybe know. I'm that not a nerd. Just like Vampire the Masquerade. Gay. Okay.
0: <laughs> so after only <laughs> a few <Gay>. months, <laughs> Gay. After only a few months of dating, Bobby grew very serious. But while Jodie initially liked the idea of spending her life with him, she eventually began to withdraw. At age 15, I thought the relationship was getting very intense. He was talking about being together forever. I loved him, but I didn't feel like I was in love with him. Fair dues. And also, he's not really going to turn you into a vampire.
1: Yeah, they don't exist.
0: Fucking tell she failed kindergarten, can't you? In early 1996, she called Bobby and broke up with him over the phone. He didn't take it well, she said. I learned a few years later, he slipped both of his wrists and tried to kill himself.
1: He didn't though, did he?
0: Oh, no, he did. He was, committed oh, he, did? To, he was committed to a mental institution in Citrus Heights, north of Sacramento. And they didn't speak together for years. So, yeah, she tried to kill the, the vampire gas station dude.
1: Bet she's a kind of do-it-over-Facebook type now. Oh, yeah.
0: Well, not now. She hasn't got access to the internet. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Just before her 17th birthday, Jody would take part in a student exchange program and would live with a family in Costa Rica. He was also called Arius. Weird, isn't it? Yeah, it's weird. The family had a daughter and two sons, the oldest of which, Victor, swept Jodie up in a whirlwind romance. Jodie felt an attraction to Victor Arius, who was tall, muscular, with short black hair and a strong jawline. I mean, she's only human. Yeah. What's your name? Victor Arias. I'm from Costa Rica, and I am here to woo you, Jodie. Take this bat, try and break it on my jaw. Try and break it on my abs. Have you seen my butt? Watch it dance. Ding, 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 <laughs>
1: ding. <laughs> Stop! My penis can only get so erect.
0: Jody said we kind of clicked and got to know each other, and a romance sort of blossomed. So sort of. You so, saw those rock-hard abs and his pecs bouncing and getting out of the pool in slow motion. Would you like to uh, go to the... You were fucking moister than an oyster, Jody. Would you like to go to the uh, restaurant tonight? Calm down. Yeah, she's like, yeah, see if something sort of blossoms. She said, though, no, it was my first experience with the warm fuzzies. Someone that I felt really cared for. Warm fuzz, I fucking hate that thing.
1: That's like them things that they give you in pro- on promotional days. Like them little fuzzy... you
0: know, no, the no, Where they
1: get a bob with the googly eyes on No,
0: them. no, what, what what the warm fuzzies are. You know when you're in love with someone? Right, but pretend you do. Pretend you have human emotion. Remember, um, right, you know when you see a new Warhammer game and you're dead excited and you feel warm inside and all happy? That. that. That's the warm fuzzies. Right. There you go. See, I talked to his level. When she returned to Eureka, her romance with Victor continued long distance. They spent the summer exchanging flowery love letters, which he wrote in Spanish. This Ooh. guy. This is a Mills and Boo novel right here, isn't it? Oh yeah. Jody wrote so often, the post office workers knew her by her name. That psycho bitch who got held back in kindergarten. <laughs> Later that summer, Victor flew to Eureka and stayed with Jodie for two weeks. During the trip, he gave her a promise ring but Victor was also jealous. He didn't like the idea of Jodie talking to other men or associating with male friends. Insecure, that's what he is. He wanted me to come and live down there and start a family, Jody said. I couldn't see myself moving to Costa Rica and having that kind of life. Basically there, she's just being racist, isn't she? She's like, it's a shit hole, I'm not moving there. You move to California. You know, we've got Taco Bell, Burger King, Arby's. What have you got? Taco vendor on the side.
1: Got Jurassic Park off the coast of Costa Rica, though.
0: Yeah, it's not real, though, Les. <laughs> By October 1997, Jodie ended her relationship with Victor Arius. Now she was working in the family restaurant, and Jodie would start talking to an old man who would always carry a Bible and quote scripture. Because if you ever see an old man who always carries a Bible and quotes scripture, you know you're going to have a fucking good time talking to him. You do. You do. The old grey mare, she ain't what she used to be. Ain't what she used to be. Ain't what she used to be. He repeatedly told her that he had deciphered the secrets of the Bible, and that he predicted the second coming of Christ would be the 27th of September 1997. He was wrong. So, all well, he was. He was wrong, yeah. But, as Jodie heard this, she immediately cast her thoughts back to her ex-boyfriend, Bobby Juarez, for some reason. She was like, the world's gonna end. Hmm, gas station vampire. During their relationship, he hadn't been religious, but to Jody, it was important for Bobby to be told about the possible rapture, for some strange reason, only known to her. The first two times she called him, he hung up on her, because he's like, go away, you made me try and kill myself, I've just been in a mental institution to get over you. Eventually, he called her back and Jodie explained the reason for her call. She said, I reached out to him for spiritual reasons.
1: Right. Okay, Judy spiritual, said, spiritual reasons. Yeah.
0: Judy said, I felt kind of silly explaining to him why I was calling him. I kind of expected him to laugh at me, but it was important to me. Yeah, so um, this old guy who carries a Bible everywhere says he's decoded the secrets of the Bible and the rapture's coming on this day. And he's like, ah, I see. Well, I am immortal. Would vampires die in the rapture? don't like people, it's not that people die, is it?
1: The well, no, they get get sent they to just, heaven. They just get like... I don't think they would get sent to heaven. No, they? so the
0: vampires would like, basically be gods on Earth, then, wouldn't they?
1: Yeah. They just feed
0: off who they want to. Oh, wow. That's a fucking metal story, that is. Shouldn't make that. Yeah, let's do it. Anyway, Bobby thanked Jodie for letting him know, and the two stayed in touch. After finishing a relationship with Victor, Jodie realised that she still had feelings for the gas station vampire. I had begun to develop feelings for him right before Christmas, she said. He had feelings for me too. So we decided to give things another try at that point. Don't go back. Don't go back, Bobby. You're going to wake up in the shower again. Good morning. It's a Dallas (laughs) reference. So Bobby was still cool as fuck and still had an interest in the occult. And this was part of what attracted Jodie. I was still drawn to that. And part of that was fascinating to me. I thought he was beautiful on the inside and out made him try to kill himself, Jody.
1: Especially with them scars, the
0: norms. Yeah. The fucking cool scars he's got now. It's like, yeah, thanks, Jodie. You did that. And the lithium. <laughs> the couple spent most of their time together and Jodie was becoming more and more distant from her parents. From Jodie's perspective, Bill and Sandra were negative, judgmental and abusive. Jody began to grow weary of their rules and physical discipline. One night during a heated argument Jodie had with her mum and dad... Bill pushed her into the doorframe, briefly knocking her unconscious, so Jodie says. Following that incident, Jodie began making secret plans to move out. Are they secret? Because if I make plans, are they secret? If I'm like, right, I'm going to move out, are they secret?
1: It depends if she was doing it like all clandestine.
0: Like writing it in code.
1: But, like well, I'm, I'm guessing she just didn't fucking tell him, did she? Yeah. Just like there. Pack. What, what are you packing there, Jodie? Oh, it's none of your business.
0: Well... She would store a few things in Bobby's shed and after her parents had grounded her for three months for skipping school, she grabbed a cat and moved in with Bobby at his grandparents' house. Just grabbed a like, cat. Well, come on. Mm-hmm. Oh, she did have a dog, right? She had a pet dog. Do you know what it was called? Doggy Boy.
1: Oh, for fuck's sake. No wonder this dickhead failed fucking kindergarten. Yeah. Do you want to call it Doggy Boy? Could go for something a bit more imaginative.
0: Doggy Boy! It's a girl, <clears throat> Jody. Doggy Boy! Don't <laughs> you, fire engine! <laughs> <laughs> to support herself and Bobby, she began working full-time. She stopped attending classes and completed her junior year with mostly failing grades. She decided not to return for a senior year. In August 1998, she found work as a waitress at Denny's. For a while, she also worked part-time busing tables at a restaurant called the Purple Plum. <clears throat> I thought that's what happened when you don't not very often. What, you get purple, purple plums? plums.
1: You do get purple plums if you don't know.
0: Yeah, so, yeah, she was giving people purple plums. For a while, her relationship with Bobby was good. Months after she moved in, Bobby's grandparents relocated to a nursing home. They were sick of her shit. They were like, fuck that, let's go to this abusive nursing home. When Jodie <laughs> switched to the graveyard shift at Denny's, she and Bobby began sleeping during the day and staying up all night like cool motherfucking vampires. Oh, yeah. But while Jody was working at night, Bobby was calling 900 numbers and talking to women, one in particular who lived in Louisiana. Now, for all you young people, these were like, in England, they were 0898 numbers, basically premium rate phone numbers where you phone up and you just talk to people, and you pay money, and you pay loads of money. If you're
1: stuck around at home, make new friends on the television.
0: like $5 a minute. And he's just on the phone to him like, yeah, and they're like, so what you been doing today, Bobby? Vampire stuff. Ooh, tell me more about it. Uh, well, did my hair. It's black. Nice. And for a Simpsons reference, it was like when Homer phoned the f- football hotline, he was like, four, two days, game, with, sin, Cincinnati, sin, Cincinnati, nah, Cincinnati, T. Yeah, it was
1: the. Well, that, like, Give Father Ted one? Where it's the priest hotline. And they're all just on there, like, hello? Hello there? <laughs> <laughs> and
0: that's all that's going on. Hello? Oh, <laughs> You're
1: a crazy okay. priest hotline.
0: <laughs> so then, Bobby and this woman in Louisiana started having an emotional affair and were exchanging emails. Jodie knew about the woman, but was under the impression that she and Bobby were just friends. But when her boyfriend became distant, Jodie grew concerned and decided to investigate by reading his email. One day before her shift at Denny's, Jodie secretly logged onto Bobby's Hotmail account and discovered the love letters. Oh. Now, she said, I clicked the back button to see what was really going on with her because I had suspicions. I found a whole bunch of love letters that he was writing for her. Jodie was heartbroken. I was not well, emotionally. It didn't make me feel good. He was very loving and poetic with this person, and I could tell he had real feelings for her. I felt jealous a little bit. My heart was pounding. I guess I felt very deceived. She's not the best orator in the world, is she? No,
1: she isn't, is she? She's very lukewarm in everything. I was kind of upset,
0: but, you know, know, just like... He was very poetic and flowery to her, but he just said, like, show us your tits. (laughs) And she was like, so poetic. My cock is throbbing. (laughs) Yeah. Stick it in your lady garden. She called in sick to your work... the olive <laughs> garden. Let's go to the olive garden. Have all the bread you want. <laughs> <laughs> she called in sick to work and printed out the letters and confronted Bobby. He apologised, begged her to forgive him, and swore he would never stray again. He was actually legitimately addicted to these phone lines. It that was like, could
1: happen back then, couldn't yeah, it?
0: Yeah, yeah, he was like addicted. He had to call them, you know... She was out at work and he's like, Yeah, fuck it, I, I'll call these. And it was an addiction to him. Um, eventually, Bobby convinced Jodie to stay, but their relationship was never the same again. So, perhaps partially due to Jodie's issues with anger, their union became tumultuous. Over the next few months, they argued frequently and broke up numerous times. Once during an argument in early 1999, Bobby became violent, Jodie said. This is a allegedly. lot. Of, allegedly. Allegedly, Jodie says this. As the fight escalated, Bobby grabbed her and placed her in a stranglehold. She fell to her knees, gasping for air, and after a few seconds, he let her go. Mm. I'm not... <sighs> a bit later on, people are going to say, I'm, I am guarantee victim-blaming. you... Victim-blaming. Victim-blaming. But Jodie does embellish things
1: quite a bit. She does, and to be honest, this guy seems... Despite his vampirism. This guy's cool as fuck. He, he just seems like a bit of a gentle soul who's lost.
0: It, he seems cool as fuck, is what he is. He's a gas station vampire. Who, the gas station has an arcade, and he just likes talking to women on the phone. And, you know, Jody's hot. He's got a hot girlfriend. They sleep all day. They're fucking up at night, living in his grandparents' house with her cat. He's a gas station vampire. Anyway, Jody said... I said something to the effect that my family would be very upset if they found out what you just did. He began to describe in detail how he would kill each member of my family. He knew a lot about my family, so these were all very personalised details about how they would die. She snatched the phone and dialed 911, and Bobby grabbed her arm, nearly breaking it. Prying the phone out of her hand, he screamed at Jodie, Shut up! We've all wanted to do that. Jody. Jodie when the operator called back Bobby explained it was a misdial how do you misdial 911 my mate dialed 999 for a laugh at my mum's house and I live there and then they kept phoning back and I was like hello and he like said oh I dialed the wrong number and the woman on the phone went what number were you meant to be dialing then and she was like don't do this again unless it's an emergency and hung up you know and I was like you fucking dick that's going to show up on the itemised bill
1: and you're all there, like, looking out the window. Or they send someone round?
0: No, he was just a prick. After the fight, Jodie moved in with her grandparents in Eureka. Despite the physical abuse, Jody continued to talk to Bobby. She rationalised that it was a one-time incident and they had never been violent in the past. But Jodie knew she had to get away. In 1999, she took a week-long vacation to Costa Rica to clear her head.
1: Oh, did she meet anybody in Costa Rica? I'm not sure.
0: She said she spent a lot of time just reflecting and healing. I felt in a lot better place by the time I got back. She said I just needed to remove myself from the situation so I could allow my heart to move on a little. So that break from him had helped me a lot. By the time she returned, Jodie had created some much-needed space between her and Bobby. They continued on and off for the next few months until Bobby moved to Medford, a large Oregon metropolis 50 miles north of Eureka. He rented an apartment with a handsome blonde named Matt McCartney. Jodie became friends with Matt, and after her and Bobby ended for the final time, she started dating him. Of course she did. Poor gas station vampire. You know, he's moved away. He's like, oh yeah, this is my handsome roommate. And then she's like, oh, we're ended. Nobbing him now. Like Bobby, he also had a fascination with the occult. Only Matt's interests were more spiritual. When she first met him, Matt had several books on wiki. Ugh. Matt explained to Jodie that he had been turned off from the Christian religion and was on a spiritual journey.
1: Through Wicca?
0: Through Wicca. In the summer of 2000, Jodie and Matt both found seasonal work at a lodge in Crater Lake, Oregon. <laughs> it's a lake <coughs> made by a
1: crater. I know, but again, it's just another one of those. Like, what was that elephant butt one? Yeah,
0: in the American River.
1: yeah. You got really angry over the American River. You fucking did. I just get angry over it.
0: Crater Lake. It's a lake from it made from a crater. It's they it make sense. It does. Yeah. Anyway, it was located in the south central region of Oregon. Crater Lake is a national park with crater a deep cut caldera, famous for its clear blue water. For the next few months Jodie and Matt worked and lived in the lodge in the staff quarters. At the end of the season, they returned to Medford where Jody resumed working at an Applebee's, White Old People Food. By the spring of 2001. Sargon of a
1: Cad works at. Who does? What? Applebee's. Who you does? ever see that? Like, Sargon of a Cad? No. Like, fuck it, he's, he's this, like, fucking political activist on the right, um, and he's got, like, channels and stuff like that. But anyway, like, he was, like, uh, part of UKIP for a while and went to, like, fucking Europe. Um, but he wore this like really bad ill-fitting black shirt and it looked like he was a fucking Applebee's employer and ever since that's it's become a bit of a meme. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's <right. laughs> It's like, why, why was that pertinent? I've, I've
0: like, never seen an Applebee's. I've never been to an Applebee's. They look like, it just, looks, just, just look
1: up the picture. I just put putting in Sargon of a card. Applebee's. I'm gonna, we, I bet we have Sargon watches and they're gonna be like, oh fucking pick on him. I don't even know who he is, so I'm not picking on him. Probably He's not. the one with Jess Phillips.
0: Oh! That
1: dude who was like, I wouldn't even rape you. Oh, that prick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, fuck him. Applebee's.
0: Anyway, by the spring of 2001, Jodie and Matt began to argue more frequently. That summer, he returned to Crater Lake to work at the lodge and Jodie stayed behind. Each weekend, Matt would drive down from Crater Lake to spend time with Jodie. But over the next several weeks, she began to feel he was withdrawing. At Matt's father's house, she discovered photos of him with another young woman. She suspected he was cheating. In September 2001, while working her shift at Applebee's, Jodie walked past a table and two people stopped her. They told her that they worked with Matt in Crater Lake and had driven down to reveal a secret.
1: I'm dead interested um, now in regards to Jodie's career like pathway because she's worked for denny's and now applebee's
0: she is she's hasn't graduated high school and she got held back in kindergarten it was either this or run for congress
1: yeah it, it's just it's just a whirlwind ride it's like is she gonna end up working at the olive garden
0: next don't think she does Oh. No. anyway they were gonna reveal a secret matt was seeing another woman and jody was crushed I was reeling, Jodie said. Of all the boyfriends I had, I would have expected him not to be the one that cheated on me. He was very loyal. I trusted him completely.
1: Blonde, handsome Wiccan.
0: Yeah, who is now staying at a lodge on his own.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Safe
0: pair of hands. Leaving work, Jodie went home, changed her clothes, and made the hour and a half drive to Crater Lake. When she arrived at the lodge, a friend directed her to the cottage where the woman was staying. Jodie knocked on the door of the cabin and confronted the woman, a pretty brunette from Romania named Bianca. Bianca informed Jodie she'd been seeing Matt for weeks. She'd been under the impression that Matt and Jodie were no longer a couple. Jodie was devastated because it was too late to drive home as well. She stayed the night in a friend's cabin. That's got to be harsh. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You're like, oh, I've got to stay here and knock on. uh, Matt's been cheating on me. Can I stay on your floor? At sunrise, she drove back to Medford and found Matt at his father's house. I confronted Matt, and he confirmed it. At that point, he was honest about it, and basically, our relationship was over. It was kind of sad. Kind of sad. Basically, she... it was over, and it was kind of sad. She, uh, she can't f- function. She's...
1: she's she's not good at emoting, but like that's a that's a narcissist thing, mm. isn't it? Like the empathy emotions are
0: a bit. Well, in autumn 2001, she moved to Big Sur, California, and applied as a surfer. What? Big Sur. Big Sur? Yeah. S-U-R, Sur. That's a place? Yeah. I've been saying Eureka for ages, and you're not picked that up. Big Sur.
1: Yeah, but I knew there was a Eureka.
0: No, not Eureka. Eureka. Y-R-E-K-A.
1: It's not as ridiculous as Big Sur.
0: Anyway, let it go. She moved to Big Sur and applied as a server at the Ventana Inn and Spa's on-site restaurant. As an adult, Jodie didn't have many friends, but Matt would remain one of the few people close to her throughout her life. Over the course of her employment, Jodie worked closely with Darryl Brewer. Twenty years her senior, Darryl was a recent divorcee and single father with a son named Jack. He was also a chain-smoking alcoholic, so of course Jodie immediately found him irresistible but because he was her direct supervisor and also fucking cool as fuck. The hotel's rule forbade them from dating. He's a fucking 40-year-old divorcee, he's a fucking drinking and smoking. No wonder she's in love with him. He's buying for... He's like, well, I'm going to get this sports car and look at my new gold watch and shit. He's loving it. Yeah. But Daryl, determined to land himself a hot young girlfriend, he resigned from his management role and their relationship blossomed really wanted to bang her.
1: He really did, yeah.
0: Daryl and Jodie would date for many years, and Daryl described her as having an aggressive and enthusiastic sexual appetite. Oh yeah. Now we're getting into the good stuff. They appeared to have a strong relationship, but Daryl's friends noticed some odd behaviour from Jodie. When Daryl mentions how blondes are his favourite, she bleached her hair. She also got breast enhancements, so she could be the same size as his ex-wife. And his friends did start to note about how she was beginning to resemble his ex-wife.
1: Oh, that is creepy.
0: Well, she's probably thinking this is what he wants in a woman.
1: Well, yeah, obviously. But, like, it's still creepy when somebody does that. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, you like goth girls. I'm a goth now. It's like, that's not how it
0: works. It's not how it works, but, but, you know, well done. But, but, yeah. yeah. It's worked. In 2005, the couple moved to Palm Desert, California. Is that okay for you, Les? Palm Desert. 100 miles east of LA, Los Angeles. Is that okay for you, Les? Yeah. Okay. Daryl and Jody co-signed on the property, which they purchased for $357,000. Daryl used his savings while seeking employment, and Jody took a job at California Pizza Kitchen. California Pizza kitchen. kitchen. We sell pizza in a kitchen. kitchen. I really hope that's the advert for it. It's not, but I hope so. Bill and Sandy A- Arius were very excited that their daughter seemed to be happy and successful and asked to come visit once the couple settles in. Jodie responded with, Where are you going to stay? I don't you staying here, snooping through all stuff. You can let it go, Jodie. I don't want somebody in my house right now, but you can do. No, no, she's like, where are you going to stay? You're not staying here because you're going to go through all my stuff and spy on me like you did when I was 14 and found me growing drugs. Let it go. Jesus Christ. For the first few months, the arrangement worked out just fine, even though Jodie was unsure about their future. But the following summer, Jodie had begun to rethink many of her life's aspirations. <coughs> she realised she wanted to marry and have children. At the time, my goal was marriage and children, at least someday, she said. I became a little more disenchanted in the relationship. We were going in different directions. We had different visions for our future. But just as their relationship began to crash, so did the economy, and Jody and Daryl had signed up for an escalating payment mortgage, and in the summer of two thousand and six their payments went up from twenty two hundred dollars to twenty eight hundred dollars a month. Jodie started to dip into her savings and credit cards to pay the mortgage. As she struggled, Jodie began to feel discontent with her unplanned future. That's a that's a real estate mortgage, that is. Mm. It was it was in the bit where they were giving out hundred percent mortgages and Interest only mortgages where you, for some reason, only pay the interest for a number of years and then you pay low. It's fucking stupid. And yeah. they wonder why the fucking world economy crashed because bankers were allowed to do anything. Right, anyway, the economy's fake anyway. It, it, is, is. it is. Who do we owe money to? oh uh, well, you know, Earth's a trillion, $4 trillion in debt. Who to? Mars. Yeah, exactly. We just fucking say there's no debt now. It's fine
1: like uh, Mars is in debt to...
0: Um... Us, because we keep putting robots there. Yeah. Anyway, she spent her early 20s aimlessly drifting from one waitress job to another. Without a high school diploma and with limited job experience, however, she had few career opportunities. I was looking for other ways to get on my feet financially so I can invest in real estate and could do other things I enjoy, such as photography, she said. Mm. Then one day her manager at the pizza kitchen said to her, what do you plan to be doing in five years? Because I plan to be retired. It's never a good sign. He had just signed up to be an independent associate with prepaid legal and wanted to sign up Jody. He gave her a DVD, encouraged her to learn more about this exciting opportunity.
1: This is not a pyramid scheme. Sque- <laughs> a nope. pyramid scheme. It's
0: more it's like a trap. Pap-
1: it's a trapezoid. It's trapezoid. It's a pie.
0: Yeah. The DVD sat in her room for months and one day she saw it and just decided to put it on. On the video she heard speeches about several people who, just like her, who become independently wealthy through prepaid legal. She decided to call and learn more. In March 2006 she signed up to be a prepaid legal associate. So soon after she met up with her representative, Michelle Hagan, who provided her with marketing materials but Jodie couldn't imagine selling to her friends and family, so the materials just sat there gathering dust. In the autumn of 2006, she got a call from Michelle Hagen, who informed her about the upcoming prepaid legal convention in Las Vegas. Although Jodie was initially reluctant, after some convincing, she decided to attend. I didn't know what to expect, Jodie said. I wasn't looking forward to going, but I figured I would give it an honest shot. In September 2006, Jodie, Michelle and another associate carpooled to the convention at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. There, Jodie would meet a man who would change her life forever. And that man was named Travis Alexander. That's a strong name, that is. So then, Travis Victor Alexander. Three first names. Can you trust this man? Also,
1: no you can't, but also one of those names is the name of one of her
0: exes. Mmm! Coincidence? You decide. He was born on the 28th of July 1977, and his childhood was completely opposite to Jodie's. Now, usually when you see like murderous serial killers, you have had a really shit childhood, where Jodie's was quite okay. She just embellished the beatings and things, I think. Travis was born to meth addict parents Gary and Pamela Alexander, and he was one of eight siblings that were being raised in Riverside in Southern California. While the children were young, his parents divorced and Travis rarely saw his father again. His mother spiraled downward into a meth addiction, and Pamela was often prone to violent outbursts, staying awake high on crystal meth for up to a week at a time. When she ran out of meth, she would sleep for days, and if one of the children woke her up from a drug-induced state, they were beaten. I mean, my dad worked night, so I know where it, she's coming from there. <laughs> you know, just be quiet. I'm joking. I'm... See, everyone's on the you're victim blaming already. Wait a while then, all victim blame. While their mum was high on meth, the children were neglected. They consumed almost everything edible within reach. And after several days, whatever remained had begun to rot, attracting cockroaches that would infest the home. Many times, Travis would wake up to cockroaches crawling all over his body. And he developed an intense phobia of cockroaches that would stay with him for his entire adult life. Well, I can kind of see why. Yeah, waking up with fucking cockroaches crawling all over. Because means they a fucking big. They fucking are, man. You can, And you can't kill them. No. You stand on them and they fucking still go.
1: Although there's this thing, right? This is the best name for a bug I've ever fucking heard. I didn't know they existed, but I encountered one um, while I was walking in Lichfield. A few weeks ago, I encountered a dead one, so this one is killable. But it's fucking huge. They're called cockchafers. <laughs> oh yeah, cockchafers. Cockchafers. They're fucking massive, oh, man. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realise. I mean, they have got like a nice carapace, but I'm just like, what the fuck is that? He's
0: like, not Starship fucking troopers. I don't mind. It. But yeah, Travis said Cockchafer. Cockchafer. It's because you rub it on your cock and it chafes. Travis said, I don't remember much of this. I can only think of one instance where I found a mouldy piece of bread on the side of the fridge that represented the last thing we could eat. I remember being teased by canned food, knowing full well that what was in the can, but not knowing how to use a can opener. Now, this is harsh. This is fucking horrible for any child to go through, that you've got to fucking eat mouldy bread. You've got cockroaches crawling over it and you can't use a can opener and you know there's fucking food. Fucking horrible. Eat the cockroaches? he's scared of them, they're crawling all over you he's thinking they're going to eat him and they're eating his food the family lived in a tiny dilapidated house for years but when Travis was a toddler, they were evicted and moved into a camper in his aunt's garage next to a washer and a dryer the camper was only 4 feet tall 5 foot wide and 6 foot long and it housed Travis, his 7 siblings and their mother for over a year holy shit Now, without being able to bathe, the children tended to stink. As a boy, Travis didn't mind being dirty, he was actually scared of bathing, because if he got the bathroom floor wet, his mother would accuse him of urinating on the ground and throw him against a wall. Not just physically violent, his mother was cruel mentally as well. I have never heard in any movie, on any street corner, or amongst the vilest of men, any string of words so offensive and hateful said with such disgust as were the words that my mother said to my sisters and me, he wrote. While Travis didn't mind being dirty when he was young, he and his siblings were mocked for their filthy clothes. After school, Travis and his sisters found small comforts in watching Sesame Street. It's harsh, this isn't it? Don't worry, he's a bit of a cock later on. His mother didn't have much family, but about twice a year, she would fix herself up enough for a visit with her grandfather, who lived an hour away from their home in Southern California. All the children adore great-grandpa Vic. Visits with him were one of the few times in Travis's young lives that he got to be a child. He would play checkers, take the kids out for pizza, and entertain them with a trunk full of toys he kept for their visits. He taught the children to read and write as well. At the end of each visit, Grandpa Vic would grab Travis by the shoulder, shake him, and say to him, Travis, you need to know that you are special, that there is not anything that you can't do. There is something great inside you. You're special, Travis. Don't you ever forget it. When Travis was six, he came to the conclusion that there was a God. In anguish, he screamed all day, begging for the Lord for his grandmother Norma to hear his cries and take him away for the weekend. I screamed so long and loud that I actually woke up my comatose mother long enough for her to beat me for waking her up. When she went back to bed, I went back to screaming to God. Sure enough that evening, my grandma came and picked me up while my mother slept. Now Grandma Norma will become the, one of the most influential people in his life. Travis's abuse at the hands of his mother continued until he was eight, when he ran away and never looked back. He went straight to his grandmother Norma's house. He turned up and he said to her, I'm gonna live with you now. Travis and his younger siblings were taken in by their father's parents, Jim and Norma Sarvey, shortly after Pamela died of a drug overdose. Living with their grandparents, the children experienced having a loving, functional family for the first time in their lives. Now, Grandma Norma became like a second mum, and the children affectionately called her Mum-Mum. Now, you're thinking this woman's nice, isn't she? A devout Mormon, Norma introduced them into her faith, which was a turning point for Travis's life. Mum-Mum the Mormon. Mum-Mum the Mormon. mum the Mormon. Right. <sighs> Mormonism. Here's a brief overview for you.
1: I love me some Mormonism.
0: Also known as the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, Mormonism is the fourth largest religious body in the United States, with more than 14 million members across the world. Adhering to the Gospel and the Book of Mormon, church members believe, first and foremost, that Jesus Christ is the Saviour of the world and the Son of God. Among the many tenets of Mormonism is the belief that a person's existence doesn't begin with birth on this earth. Rather, Mormons consider that all people lived as spirits before being born and receiving a physical body. Jesus in space! that be on it. The purpose of an earthly life is to learn, grow and progress in knowledge and worthiness. The temporary trials of life represent a mere blink of an eye on an eternal scale for Mormons. Once a person passes, their spirit spends eternity in one of three heavenly kingdoms. Also, there was some sort of fucking salamander and golden plates and a hat and a seeing stone. And the guy who founded Mormonism was a convicted con artist. Didn't he say something to the effect, was this
1: was this Mormonism? That like somehow, because they found tablets, he said he found tablets. No, they? they
0: were got, yeah, the the angel... Came down. I can't remember the angel's name, and he gave him these golden plates. They had to use and look in a hat because no one else could see them in a hat. Golden yeah. plates and. A no, hat. he gave him golden plates, and he looked a scene stone in a hat, and he had to look like that and read them because no one else could see them. So he had to.
1: Sounds uh, legit.
0: Yeah, seems legit, doesn't it? Yeah.
1: Didn't you also say that like Hebrews had like
0: come to America yeah the garden of eden was somewhere in i think it was in kansas city somewhere <laughs> no, we, they literally believe that the garden of eden was in america anyway <clears throat> so given Travis's cruel upbringing he felt a strong connection to the mormon faith for some strange reason he's probably like shit it couldn't be any worse his past wasn't a punishment it was a lesson one that strengthened his spirits and character it was now up to him to decide his fate if he wanted a different destiny, a better life than his mother and father had provided, it was in his power to make it happen. You couldn't actually get much of a worse life than his mum and dad provided. No. While attending Rubadoo High School Really. Rubadoo High School.
1: Really? For fuck's sake, America. Rubadoo.
0: What the fuck? I don't know. It sounds like fucking seventies funk band.
1: Sounds it? almost Australian. Ruby. <laughs> We're at the Robidoux.
0: Here at Robidoux. (laughs) In the lefty and the blimey and the bony knife. Robidoux. He was initially quiet and shy and he often ate alone in the library. Nerd. But as he became more active in the church, he would come out of his shell and become social and outgoing. In 1996, Travix used his savings to go on a two-year Mormon mission and would go to Denver, Colorado. I'm on a Mormon mission you always see them don't you like oh especially around here especially
1: around here because they're like the one down there like um in their little uniforms yeah it's and it always says jesus on there no you always
0: say like jesus christ, christ the, the latter day saints yeah and they have the names and um, if but you get the to... name's
1: smaller than but, where it yeah, says know, jesus
0: christ and have you you're, ever, have it... you ever spoke to him they're all right. They're really nice guys. And they're really nice. Detroit. They're usually
1: American or Canadian. And they are,
0: yeah. And they always like they always give you like a book of Mormon. I've got about five of them. Yeah, they're very polite. They are. They're very polite. They are. They're really nice. And you just talk to them. And they're cool. And they're like, yeah, maybe, you know, I'll challenge you to read this. Sometimes, book. though,
1: you get like two Mormon
0: girls, I Oh, well,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But... There's, there is a point where you right, start we're getting, thinking. Right, right,
0: right, right, right. Hold that thought about your two hot Mormon girls. Wait till we get into this, because I know what you're going to be wanking over tonight. So, seriously. Dressed according to the required code, conservative dark trousers, white dress shirts, and ties for the men. Travis traveled across Denver with another young male missionary, his companion, switching companions every few months as part of a Mormon custom, as his tradition. He puts his hand in the pudding, as his tradition. (laughs) Of it has. <laughs> folk, like, it's a British wedding Here he is, putting his hand in the pudding wiping it on his face As is tradition As a missionary, Travis was known as Elder Alexander it's me, Tom. Now it's like, hey. Hi, this is Elder Alexander and Elder Boyson
1: How you doing? They're my favourite zone leaders We're
0: her favourite zone leaders <laughs> She's lying She's not <laughs> Something's wrong with her Let's
1: put it down. <laughs> Elder Alexander, when are you going home?
0: Uh, three days Wow yeah.
1: When are you going home, Elder Boyce?
0: About March. Yes, I have six? less days than he has Somewhere. months.
1: Yeah.
0: Actually, I have less, less hours than he has days. We figured that out, too. Oh, no, sick. No, I have less hours than he has weeks. <laughs> That's <laughs> sick. OK. Well, say something so nice you have to so our families. Um. on your hands to figure all that out. Um, yeah. No, I do Each morning, he and his companion woke up at dawn, ate breakfast, exercised, and spent two hours studying the scriptures. The remainder of the day spent knocking on doors, attempting to convert non-Mormons to their faith. Even though that sounds to me totally boring, Travis said it was totally two of the best years of his entire life. Oh. Now, Travis wanted to become successful, and he threw himself into self-help books. Among his favorites were Think and Grow Rich, how to Win Friends and Influence People, The Slight Edge, The Richest Man in Babylon, You Were Born Rich, The Greatest Salesman in the World, and Atlas Shrugged. Oh, for fuck, I'm Rand. i Rand. For fuck's sake. But Travis wanted to inspire others as well, and help them motivate them into leading a better life. Every day he would write himself a list of six things he wanted to accomplish that day and would steadily increase them until he had dozens of things to accomplish on his daily list. After he returned from his mission, he moved to Provo, Utah, and enrolled in college, but quickly realised that college wasn't for him. He moved back to Riverside and rented an apartment with three male roommates. He would have a string of jobs, such as drug testing urine, telemarketing, and selling insurance. He would face financial hardship while doing these That's an jobs. an
1: interesting one, drug
0: testing urine. Oh yeah, I'd like to do that. I don't mind that, that sounds alright. Just like, find someone you didn't like, and he's like, oh yeah, they're on crack. But he never lost his belief that he was destined to be successful. Around this time, he started to date Deanna Reed off and on. She lived in an apartment across the road from Travis and his roommates with three other single mormon girls. When they would stop dating, they would still be the best of friends. Now, by the age of 23, Travis held three jobs working 80 hours a week. His best job was in retail sales at the local mall, which paid just $9 an hour. Travis's commute was up to three hours a day as he drove from job to job in his Honda, which frequently broke down. He also was in a lot of debt, and by the year 2000, he owed $20,000. Shit. That was in various credit card debts. He was also sleeping on a friend's couch. When he wasn't working, he would attend the temple and read scriptures and pray for God to show him a way to forge a career. And that way appeared in the form of Chris Hughes in late 2001. That name sounds familiar. No. it's Chris Hughes. You've probably met about 80 of them in your life. It's not like it's fucking Rubidoo Shabadoo Jr., is it? Rubedo. Chris Hughes was a successful executive and personal development lecturer. He was also a Sunday school teacher and met Travis after he gave a lecture on parenting and family values. The conversation turned to Chris's career. Travis knew that Chris was financially successful, but was unsure of how he made his money. For some reason, that day, Travis felt compelled to ask. Have you heard of the Chippendales? Chris said with a smirk. (laughs) Oh, Chris. (laughs) They both laughed as well. (laughs) But then Chris said, no, seriously. I'm one of the top executives with a company that sold legal insurance. Prepaid legal services, Chris told him. They had been in business for more than three decades and provided legal services to more than 1.5 million people across the United States and Canada. The legal insurance plans were sold through independent contractors, utilising multi-level marketing, also known as network marketing, also known as a fucking pyramid scheme. It's a pie. It's a trapezoid. Part of the prepaid legal business model was involved recruiting new salespeople. Associates earned a commission off each sale, as well as a percentage of contracts each person they recruited sold. It's like a pyramid. And just for the low, low price, Les, of $249, you too could get the privilege of selling prepaid legal insurance. Sound good?
1: Oh, it sounds delightful. I think think I've missed my calling.
0: Yeah, but thing is, though, they're not picky because Jodie got to it and she couldn't even finish fucking high school. As kindergarten. We'll as, as long as you fucking pay that money, this company's still going now. They've changed the name of the company a number of times, probably. I'm um, I think it's due to this case, probably, because everyone knew prepaid legal, Travis Alexander Jody Arias, but they've done it. But I was looking into it because uh, I went on the site and I looked, and they do make it sound like pretty good. It's basically you've got a lawyer on standby, that, so if you like need a lawyer, you phone up and they get you on straight away. Doesn't sound the most
1: awful pyramid scheme.
0: No, but, you know what I mean, you've got to be pretty desperate to do it. Yeah. Now, Travis, he was one of the only people I've ever heard who was fucking successful in a pyramid scheme. He closed three deals on his first day. He would soon recruit people to work under him, selling insurance to high-profile people, lads. How high? Barney the Dinosaur, or the guy who played him in the costume. Now, in the 1990s, this is a fucking big get.
1: Yeah, that is a Guy who
0: played Barney the Dinosaur.
1: It is funny, though.
0: Yeah, he would even use this in his sell pitch, saying to customers, if a purple dinosaur needs legal insurance, don't you think you need it too? Huh? Huh? I mean, he's got a point.
1: Purple dinosaur? If
0: If I'm trying to sell you something, right, and I'm like, I've sold this to Barney the fucking dinosaur. And you're like, really? Yeah. I'm like, if Barney the Dinosaur needs this, don't you think you need it? And you're like, well... That guy's fucking successful. Yeah, I
1: need that. Also, there's something slightly worrying about that. Why does a fucking purple Tyrannosaurus Rex need legal insurance? Something's happened there. You know, Something's happened there. Like if you are gonna leave your kids in the in the fucking care of a carnivorous theropod, well, they don't
0: really do they? It's so, it's sort of like Freddy Krueger. It's like Barney is a dinosaur from your imagination. So they think of him. They manifest him. He comes. And that's why you never see the kids at the same time. Because he just fucking devours them. Yeah. And the that's, that's like, why he needs... The parents are like, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't say you could either. He manifested me. I'm a fucking dancer. Whoa, no, no. BJ and the other one was there. He's like, look, like, do... speak to my lawyer. We
1: don't... We Yeah. Speak to prepaid legal. I don't know what happened to Alice. I don't know what
0: happened to Alice. But, like, she was tasty. Yeah. You feed her all that kale. She's going to be tasty. Yeah. But California was saturated with prepaid legal executives, because obviously, you know, every fucker's doing it. And Travis decided if he wanted to move up the ladder, he needed to go somewhere he could become the prepaid legal Jesus. And that place was Mesa, a suburb of Phoenix, Arizona. He moved there in 2004 and quickly became popular in the huge local Mormon community, making many lifelong friends.
1: Phoenix, Arizona's okay, like, that's a good name. Fucking Firebird
0: about Mesa? Is that okay? Mesa's okay for you? I was
1: thinking Black Mesa. Like, what's that from Half-Life, is it?
0: He also recruited lots of Mormons to join his prepaid legal team. Oh! <laughs> yeah, now, seriously, this is how good he was, right? He was so successful, he ranked second out of all 5,000 prepaid legal executives in the country.
1: Wow. He's a go-getter.
0: He quickly bought a house, rented out the spare rooms, and brought himself a BMW. He also got himself a pug, which he called Napoleon. That's a good name for a pug. It is, but also I have a theory that that dog killed him. Okay. You stare into Jody Harris's butthole for long enough, you start to see the truth, or oh, that could just be my self lothianisms
1: I've just got images of you like researching this fucking thing, and every so other offer like getting a bit like, then just looking at the other screen and being like the inspiration I needed. It is,
0: I was like, you know, looking at that butthole, I think she's innocent. But life was good for Travis. He was doing motivational speeches, talking about how he became successful and how his faith helped him. By 2006, his business was running itself, but one thing was missing from his life, a girlfriend. Now, Travis was supposed to be celibate, and he wore a CTR ring, which stood for Choose the Right. Which is the right path, which is celibacy, lads. But he wasn't... <laughs> <laughs> but he wasn't the good little Mormon everyone thought he was. He and Diana had had sex before, and he also had sexual encounters with other girls too. You know those two Mormon chicks you got in your head? Mm-hmm. Some Mormons believe that anything apart from vaginal intercourse is okay. So Travis <laughs> was doing chicks up the butt, in the ear, in any other place that he could... Do you get him to dress up as the little yellow dinosaur from, or green one? Uh, the yellow one was called BJ, and that was a boy, so probably not. But yeah, in um, um, anal sex, it's known as the Catholic condom.
1: <laughs> but while attending,
0: a... <laughs> while attending a prepaid legal conference in Las Vegas, Travis laid eyes on a hot blonde who was everything he was looking for. Jody was standing outside of the Rainforest Cafe at the MGM Grand with her supervisor David Hughes when he started waving someone over. T-Dog, come here for a sec. I have someone I really want you to meet. They called him T-Dog. He's a fucking mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. prick. Jodie looks up to find a young man in a nice suit who she instantly finds herself attracted to. He shakes her hand and introduces himself as Travis Alexander. That night, Travis and Jodie would talk to each other, laugh, and then part ways. Jodie thought he was nice, but she had a boyfriend. And Travis was a prepaid legal big shot. So that yeah. was that. He couldn't see anything in this hot, fake-tittied, blonde at all. What would this big shot want with you? Yeah. But the next day, Travis called Jodie, and he invited her to the prestigious Black and Gold Ball, a special event that was only for high-level prepaid legal executives and their guests. It's called black and gold. Jodie said she hadn't packed anything that was suitable to wear. But Travis said, don't worry, I will find you a dress. And he did. That night, Travis and Jodie talked, laughed, dined and listened to the magical presentation by prepaid legal executives. Jodie now finds herself in quite a predicament. While she loves Daryl, they have a mostly happy relationship. He expresses to her that he does not want to get married again or have any more children both things that Jodie desperately wants. She also worries that he may lose interest in it as she gets older. Daryl was also looking for jobs in Monterey as his ex-wife had moved there with their son.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Later, Daryl would say that he was unclear that their relationship had ended at this point. But for Jodie, she now considered herself a single woman, and had every intention of pursuing a budding romance with Travis Alexander. That Friday, five days after the convention, Jodie met Travis at the house of Chris and Skye Hughes. The Hugheses lived in Murrieta, an upscale city in Southern California, about an hour and a half drive from the Palm Desert. For Travis and Jodie, it would be the first of many visits at the Hugheses' house. And over the next six months, they would visit the Hugheses every couple of weeks. Chris and Skye liked Josie at first, but they could see that Travis was truly obsessed. So they would let them stay over. But in separate bedrooms, of course. Oh, of
1: course, of course.
0: The first weekend, Travis would take Jodie to the Mormon church, and after, Jodie drove back to Palm Springs. Three days later, they met up in a Starbucks, and Travis gave her a copy of the Book of Mormon and said, I challenge you to read it. From that moment on, Jodie would throw herself into the Mormon faith, changing herself into the partner that she thought Travis would want. Now, despite the Mormon beliefs, their relationship would quickly become sexual. This was especially conflicting to Travis, who had previously been revoked of his temporal privileges for premarital sex. Now, the temple is like the holiest place where they can go, and if you get your temple privileges, you can go to the church, but you can't go to the temple, and it's like the fucking big shame thing. But, the first sexual encounter came at the first weekend at the Hughes' house. After everyone had gone to bed, Travis slipped into Jodie's room, they sat down on the bed, Without uttering a word, he began to passionately kiss her. He removed Jodie's pyjamas and performed oral sex. She reciprocated. He just fucking went straight into it, didn't he? He did. He's like, yeah, nah, nah, nah. Wearing you like a feedback, Jodie. Feedbag. <laughs> <laughs> a few weeks later, they met in a motel in Ehrenberg where they spent the weekend having sex. However, Jodie began to notice that between sex, Travis seemed distant. On the phone, they would talk for hours, but in person, it seemed that Travis just wanted sex. He didn't call her for two days after the motel, leaving Jodie feeling that she'd been used and upset. But after leaving him two voicemails and a text message, he called and they resumed their relationship. In the beginning, they never progressed to the extent of vaginal intercourse. Instead, they had oral sex and outer course, which is physical stimulation without penetration. According to Jody, Travis led her to believe that oral and anal sex were less sinful than intercourse. Well done, Travis. Travis. Well done. <laughs> My hat goes off to you, sir. You can tell she didn't finish high school and got held back in kindergarten. No, just shoving it you up your butt's fine. Not sinful. Isn't that thing called
1: sodomy? Shut yeah. up. Shh, shh,
0: shh. Hush. hush, hush, Jody. You're so pretty when you don't talk. Now, Jody said, My understanding is that vaginal sex was off limits, but all other sex was more or less okay. I didn't feel like we were sinning. Of course you didn't. Of course you didn't. How are you gonna feel like you're sinning with a dick up your arse? In court, Jodie claimed Travis was the one who pursued her sexually. Travis's friends, however, said she was more likely the aggressor. While simultaneously the
1: aggressor.
0: <laughs> at the Mormons. He'd wink and whistle at him, and they're like, fucking, uh, I'm violated. While simultaneously presenting herself as a devout Mormon, Jodie was also a temptress.
1: Damn whore of
0: Babylon. Travis's friends said that Jodie would follow Travis from room to room and wait outside the bathroom while he was in there, and after she heard the flush, she would leave. She would suck on his earlobe in front of people and would sit staring at him, hoping he would look at her. Now, Travis fucking hated all of this shit, and he'd act distant from her. But this would just make her try harder, and when meeting new people, he would introduce her as his friend. But Jodie would always say, correct him and say, I'm his girlfriend. She even went so far as to get a t-shirt made up that said, Travis Alexander's. His friends were getting sick of her too, believing that her conversion to Mormonism was all an act and it was only to impress Travis. So he would think that she was marriage material. Now, she took this a step further by getting baptised with Travis in attendance confirming himself as a devout Mormon. Throughout the end of 2006, Travis and Jodie saw each other frequently. In addition to the trips to the Hughes' house, Travis would visit her in California about once a month. In return, she drove to Arizona every few weeks to see him. In December 2006, Prepaid Legal was hosting an event in Arizona. In preparation, Travis had invited dozens of friends from Utah and California to stay at his house. When Jodie learned of the event, she told Travis she would be attending. Since there was no room at his place, she said she would stay with other friends. But the night before the event, Jodie showed up at Travis's doorstep. Entering the house, she announced himself as his girlfriend. She's not my girlfriend. We've been dating, Travis said. (laughs) (laughs) Travis reminded Jodie that there was no room at his place. But as the hours passed, Jodie lingered. Her attention focused on Travis as she followed him from room to room. This is horrible. This is so fucking cringe. That night, Travis slept in his office while two female friends stayed in his bed upstairs. But Jodie didn't leave. She curled up on the living room floor and slept underneath the Christmas tree. This is kind of like Wayne's world, ain't it? With um, his girlfriend, Stacy, where she's like, happy anniversary, Wayne. We broke up three weeks ago. That doesn't mean we still can't date. Actually, it does. That's what breaking up is. She's there with a the gun rack for him. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I don't own a gun let alone many guns that necessitate a rack. What am I going to do with a gun rack? Carry on like this way and you're going to lose me. I lost you three weeks ago. Are you mental? (laughs) Now, this was when Jodie began to realise that in front of strangers, Travis would be affectionate. But in front of his friends from the church, he would act cold towards her. She confided in Sky Hughes that she wanted to marry Travis, but was worried. Why wouldn't he ask her to move to Arizona? I wonder, Jodie. Mm. Now you can see this is the part where I'm sort of like he kind of shouldn't have done this. This is not how you treat women.
1: Mm-hmm. Damn yeah. it,
0: Travis, sort your shit out. Unbeknownst to Jody, though, Travis was seeing other women. She was aware that they weren't an exclusive item, but thought she was the only woman in his life. He told her in 2006 that she should date other people too, and she dated a few guys from the prepaid legal scene. But she'd always tell them that she was getting back with her boyfriend, Travis. As while this was happening, Travis continued to have a sexual relationship with Jodie. Don't do that, Travis. Don't lead people on. Yes, don't lead people on. Jodie would tell him about these men and say they were harassing her on the phone and wouldn't take no for an answer, which eventually would lead to Travis becoming jealous. Now, Jodie would flirt with married men at prepaid legal events and then tell Travis that they were pursuing her. She would do this in front of Sky Hughes, hoping she would relay this to Travis. But Skye could see how Jodie was manipulating the men. She noticed how Jodie was unemotional, and every action seemed fake and pre-planned. Maybe like she's a bit crazy, and you should be warning your friend Travis, stop having relations with her, because she's fucking crazy. Travis's other friends began to notice this too, with Clancy Talbot, an executive director at Prepaid Legal, saying, When you looked at Jodie, it was like she was empty. She never talked about her life, her past, her family, or any friends. No one really knew anything about her. Ever. She just kind of morphed into whoever she was around. She just took on the personality who was ever in the room. In 2006, Darrell Brewer moved out of the house he brought with Jodie, but she couldn't keep up the repayments on her own, and the house was repossessed by the end of 2007. But at the start of that year, Jodie had Skye and Chris on her side. She told them how Travis was with her alone, but when people were there, he acted aloof and cold. This led to Skye sending Travis an email calling him a heart predator, and Jodie was being treated horribly. You weren't beating her physically, but you were emotionally. She has given you everything, all control, and you give her 3am calls and make-out fests. He's giving a fucking anal as well, Sky. You hot predator. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: Such a Mormon way of saying fucking... He's a hot
1: predator. You need to avoid these types of... Um, it's got an image of, like, fucking predator now. With the fucking care bear, like, fucking hot <laughs> on his
0: chest. This <laughs> hot predator. They even told Jodie that she should stop seeing Travis for her own good. But when Travis found out, he sent Skye an angry email. You crossed the line and have caused irreparable damage to our relationship. But the Hugheses quickly lost any sympathy towards Jodie. And when Travis was visiting and he received an email from her, saying she had received an anonymous email, stating, I watch your every move and I will have you. It went on to describe Jodie as beautiful and talented. Travis doesn't deserve you, the email continued. He's too far away to protect you. He, she's wrote this herself, hasn't she? Jodie called Travis and told him more about the message. I wasn't going to say anything, but I was scared and it mentioned your name. And you deserve to hear about it. Travis read the email to Skye. He burst out laughing and said, You know Jodie wrote that right. She wants you to ask her to move in. But Travis denied Jodie would do anything like that, saying she was too nice and sweet to even think of it. What a rube. Around this time, Jodie started turning up at Travis's house uninvited in the early hours of the morning, and Travis would always bring her in and have hot mormon anal with her while still believing that she understood that they weren't an item. At first, they seemed very happy. The two would soon start travelling together after reading A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. Jodie would happily snap pictures of these trips, and Travis was more than a willing model. However, his friends would notice strange behaviour from Jodie. She would often enter his house when he was, wasn't home, crawling in through the doggy door and waiting nude for Travis in bed, which he found disturbing. His libido allowed him to brush it off.
1: He didn't find it disturbing. He's
0: probably like, That's weird that you have crawled in my house through the doggy door, but by God, you're naked and in my bed. I just, uh,
1: oh, just assume the position again, Jodie, please. Oh,
0: get over it's going in the ass Travis's friends often expressed their concern and a few even stated we're afraid you're going to end up dismembered in a freezer someday (laughs) (laughs) Travis shrugged this off saying that while Jodie was a little eccentric and needy she was a sweet girl and she thought fondly of them
1: she's just eccentric
0: I love it you really use that term She's eccentric, it's all right. But one such occasion was in March 2007 when Chris Hughes and his wife Skye invited the couple to stay at the house for the weekend. Now, Sky was put off by Jodie's behaviour and at one point when Jodie went to bed, Chris and Skye asked to talk to Travis privately. In their room, they expressed their concerns to their friend who was quickly brushed them off. And then Skye makes a startling realisation. She walked to the door, opened it and said, "'What do you want?' Jodie, staring at them at the door. Wow. She started looking between Sky and Chris and said, Is there a problem? Travis said, No. Is this a private conversation? Travis just went, Yeah, it is. Years later, the Hughes would recall the fear they felt that night. She had this look on her face that gave us the chills, Chris said. She had so much rage. It was like pure evil, Sky added. Like that she kid, was emanating, was pulsating this terrible energy. That night, they were considering taking their children out of the house. Whoa. The next morning, they spoke with Travis and said, She's absolutely not welcome in our home anymore. Fine, you tell her that, said Travis. <laughs> nice one, Travis. You brave man. Two months later, in May, Jody would walk into the Hughes' home unannounced when they were entertaining, asking Skye why her and Travis's friends didn't like her. Why don't you friends like me? Could you turn up unannounced. Skye fucking flipped out on her, telling her because of things like this. And she threw her out. She's like, because <laughs> it's shit like this, Jodie. <coughs> okay. You're weird. But then, Jodie just walked into the kitchen and stared at Skye's friend, Holly, menacingly as she cooked mac and cheese for 10 minutes before leaving. <laughs> oh, God. So, Yeah this a thousand places be- see before you die He read about it and it basically it listed a thousand exotic places around the world including sacred ruins, grand hotels, wildlife preserves, hilltop villages, castles, hidden islands and museums. Now they traveled to these places while attending prepaid legal conferences and would also check out some Mormon sites too such as the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. They would share a hotel room together and they'd be intimate. But while at prepaid legal events, Travis would again be distant and cold towards Jodie. Fucking, you know she's crazy.
1: And she's she's a bit infatuated with you. Travis, just stop. You're poking a bear.
0: Yeah, but... He eventually grew tired of Jodie's obsession with him, and he called off the relationship on the June the 29th, 2007. Initially, he told her he just wanted to stay friends, but after some seduction on Jodie's end, and her now renting an apartment in Mesa to be closer, he agreed to be friends with benefits. Uh. And the two continued to have a secret sexual relationship and travel together, while Travis scouted out for a new Mrs. Wright. This of course pissed Jodie off and she would harass Travis and any of his potential girlfriends with anonymous calls and messages, occasionally wait in the bushes at Travis's to scope out new girls, slash his tyres, and also crawl through Napoleon's doggy door to wait for him to come home. First, Travis didn't think Jodie would do something like that, but his friends were like, no, dude, it's Jodie. Now, in spring of 2008, Travis told Jodie that it would probably be in both of their interests if Jodie moved back to Eureka with her grandparents and Jodie surprisingly agreed and returned to California. Though Jodie was now looking into other romantic relationships as well, the pair stayed in contract, planned hanging out and going on future trips, and of course, talking dirty to each other. Which we shall hear about when they go to court! Woohoo! The two were truly stuck on one another, despite Travis slowly becoming scared of Jodie. But a prepaid legal retreat in Cancun on June the 15th would prove to be the catalyst for what would come. Now, the retreat allowed for PPL's top salesperson to come down to Cancun for two weeks, with one special guest of their choosing. First, Travis intended on bringing his travel-slash-sex buddy Jody with him, but he was developing strong feelings for Mimi Hall, a friend from his temple. Now, Mimi didn't view Travis the same way he saw her, but he was sure after two weeks on a beach together, being surrounded by work friends who could vouch for him and some classic tea dog charm, he would win her over. But on May the 26th, 2008, Jodie and Travis had an argument about the Cancun trip, as well as numerous other issues. Travis finally sent her a text message reading, I am nothing more than a dildo with a heartbeat to you. You are a sociopath. You are the worst thing that ever happened to me. Wow. As you probably guessed, Jody isn't too happy about this. She started planning another trip. Oh. Ultimate destination is West Jordan, Utah, to visit Ryan Burns, another PPL representative and a Mormon that she's been talking to. They've been speaking several times a week, and often for hours at a time. They also exchange flirty text messages, emails, and instant messages, such as, Hey, Hottie biscotti, what's new? So wet now. Fucking ugh, hotty I biscotti. Bis- I don't like biscotti. Yeah, Jody wrote it. In text messages, Ryan encouraged Jodie to come up to Utah for a visit. I wonder why. Just come up and stay, he wrote. On the 3rd of May, he sent another text. So I'm getting close to talking you into it. Then he said, What do I have to do to seal the deal? In another set of messages, Jody talked about being a snuggler and wanting to cuddle up with Ryan while they watch movies. <laughs> But she was still talking to Travis and their conversations would more often not turn sexual. And, you know, I'll read it now because you can watch the video that we've put up of the best of Jodie in court. Right. You have the most incredible stamina I've ever dreamed of. We've had more than two hour sessions many times. Are you touching yourself? I am already. You make me so horny. I seriously think about having sex with you every day. That's when she'd go on to come on the call... And Travis told her, you sound like a 12-year-old girl coming for the first time. What the fuck? I'll repeat that. Travis said, you sound like a 12-year-old girl having her first orgasm. How does he know? Just, the, what the fuck, Travis? What, yeah. There's, there's talking dirty, and then there's fucking being weird, mate. That is
1: weird. Didn't take a long to, uh, to squirt, though, did it, by the sounds of it, though?
0: Watch the video, Les. You can hear her doing it. Oh yeah, just another quick aside. The start of that conversation, he says, I want to tie you to a tree and shove it up your ass. And she's like, oh my God, that's so debasing. I love it. Shove the tie to the tree. And shove it up her ass. Like, his dick. Oh, his dick, not Not the tree. tree. No, that'd be difficult because she's tied to it.
1: Yeah, that's what I thought. I was like, that's like when you're sexting and then you realise it's like, oh, I forgot where I'd put my hand position on the last message and... And now it feels like I'm a fucking octopus It's taken me right out of this.
0: What? Stop shouting, Laz. Anyway, so it's unclear what triggered the fight, but Jodie would claim Travis became enraged when he saw a comment she had posted on another man's photo on Facebook. And Travis would later tell friends he caught Jodie hacking into his Facebook account. Which one Mm. am I going to believe? Some would later speculate that Jodie had threatened to release a recording of the sex tape. Yeah, we don't know why she recorded it. She just recorded it. Mm. She's crazy, Travis. Others still believe that Travis had discovered something truly disturbing about Jodie, something she never wanted exposed. I thought she was fucking mental. And she dated a gas station vampire. Whatever the cause, Travis exploded with a flurry of angry text messages. The fight continued late into the night, short phone calls and instant message chats. He berated Jodie. His cutting words were, Sociopath evil and referenced all the crazy things you have done. You are a sociopath, you only cry for yourself, you have never cared for me, and you have betrayed me worse than any example I could conjure. You are sick and you have scammed me. In reference to a conversation Jodie had with another man, he called her a slut and a whore. You slut and you whore. He said, if he knew what I knew about you, he'd spit in your face. <laughs> Travis referred to something that Jodie had done to him so bad it destroyed him emotionally. I have never, never in my life been so hurt so bad by someone. What, but why even say it? Because you don't care. It doesn't serve your evilness. I think she stuck her fingers up his ass. Yeah. Yeah. Don't like it when the tables are turned. No. Just go with it. It's
1: society's crime, not ours.
0: In one of the final messages, Travis told her he wanted her out of his life. I want you to know how I feel about you. I want you to understand how evil I think you are. You are the worst thing that's ever happened to me." Two days later in Eureka, Jody's grandfather came home and discovered the back door of his house had been kicked in, splintering the wooden door frame. They called the police and Colton Allen went from room to room, checking the house. At first, it didn't appear as if anything was missing. Then in the living room, he noticed the DVD player was gone, and in the spare bedroom which was cluttered with boxes was a wood cabinet that had been transformed into a gun cabinet. Inside, they discovered that one of the guns, a small 25 caliber pistol, was missing. Carlton called the police to report the burglary, and an officer arrived at the house around 3.30pm on May the 28th. Half an hour after the officer arrived on the scene, Jodie returned to the house. At the time of the robbery, she explained, she had been at a Buddhist monastery near the Oregon border. Okay, and there was no cell phone reception. Believable, is it? She told the officer that she'd been at the house earlier, around one thirty p.m. The officer asked Jodie to check her bedroom. On the dresser, Jodie claimed she had left cash—a twenty-dollar and a ten-dollar note—and they were now missing. Jodie searched through the green laundry basket next to her bed. Inside, she found her laptop. "I'm lucky," she said. "I had hidden my laptop under some dirty clothes." You fucking.
1: Fucking Moriarty, aren't you, Jodie?
0: For fuck's sake. I fucking hate this, not Her grandfather asked if she'd seen the gun. She said, I don't even know what a twenty-five caliber gun looks like. It's real small. It looks like a toy. She shook her head and said, I've never seen it. The gun would never be recovered. Before making the 100 mile trek from Eureka to a budget car rental office in Redding, California, she had called several times to confirm a specific vehicle would be available to her. It was about 8am on Monday June the 2nd and Jodie was on a road trip to see Ryan Burns as well as visit her ex-boyfriends. She planned to go to Santa Cruz to spend the night with Matt McCartney and then head to Monterey to meet up with Daryl Brewer. The next day she was stopped by Los Angeles to photograph Daryl's sister's new baby for a portfolio before proceeding to Utah. The night before, Jodie had stayed up late talking to Travis. Between 1 and 4am Jodie called Travis four times the longest conversation lasting just a few minutes. Around 3am, Travis called Jodie twice, and they spoke for over an hour. Oh. During one of their calls, Jodie mentioned her trip to Utah. She would later say Travis encouraged her to come to Mesa and see him as well, but she declined. After renting the Ford, Jodie drove three hours to Lodi, a city in the northern portion of California's Central Valley. At 4.03pm, she called Travis... An hour and a half later, she called Travis again. She drove to a nearby McDonald's where she curled up in her backseat and slept for a few hours. She awoke when it was dark. 7.32pm, she ate dinner at McDonald's and an hour later she filled her gas tank at Valero Station. She then drove to Santa Cruz, a city near Monterey Bay, where she met Matt McCartney and his roommate. The three went to a restaurant where they had appetizers and passed the hours singing tunes at the karaoke bar. She spent the night at Matt and his roommate's apartment, sleeping on the floor. The following morning, Jodie woke up early and went to Monterey, a city located on the southern edge of Central California's Pacific coast. Around 7am on June the 3rd, she stopped by the apartment of Darryl Brewer and his son in Pacific Grove. Over the last year, they had kept in touch by occasional phone calls. This visit, however, was the first time they'd seen each other in more than a year. That morning, Jodie joined Darryl and Jack for breakfast, and Darryl made omelettes, then Jack left for school. In using Daryl's computer, Jody checked her email and MySpace page, Jody reminded Daryl of her request. A few days earlier, she asked calling to borrow two gas cans. What do you need them for? And she was like, well, you know, I need, I'm taking a long trip, and also, um, the gas is cheaper in California. It's also so she didn't leave any receipts. She didn't mention any details of her plans, but she mentioned something about a trip to Mesa. She took the gas cans, loaded them in her car and drove off. At 10am she stopped at nearby Washington Mutual in Monterey and made three bank deposits totaling $800, mm-hmm. juggling money between her personal and work account. She then got back in her car and headed 20 miles east to Salinas where she stopped at a nail salon and got a manicure. At 12.57pm she called Travis, an hour later at 1.51pm she called him again. At 3.22pm, Jody went to a Monterey Walmart where she brought face wash, sunscreen and another gas can for $45. Late that afternoon, she got back on the road and drove another six hours towards Los Angeles, on the way she called Daryl's sister, but there was no answer. Mm-hmm. Despite driving the long distance, Jodie would not end up seeing her former lover's sister or the new baby. As she drove towards Los Angeles, she called Ryan Burns, she told him she would be about 12 hours away, and be in Utah around 11 a.m. At 8.16 p.m. Jody again called Travis. The call was short, lasting just two minutes. Jody stopped outside of Los Angeles and Pasadena. At 8.31 p.m. she made a purchase for $6.37 at Pasadena CVS. A few minutes later at 8.34, she called Travis again. She then stopped at a local Starbucks and brought a strawberry frappuccino. At oh, 8 At 8.42 p.m. Jody filled her gas tank Minutes later, she made two separate purchases of gas, filling the gas cans and loading them into the back of the truck. She got back behind the wheel of a car, and then she turned off the cell phone. Now, early on June the 4th, we know she arrived at Travis's house. Right. No one except for Jodie knows for certain what happened in the house that day, but what is certain is the two had sex, Jodie takes pictures, Travis got in the shower, and then Jodie attacked. Travis was stabbed 29 times, his throat was cut through to the spine, and he was shot in the head. Holy fuck! Defence wounds were found on his hands during the autopsy suggests he was alive through most of the attack, though coroners are unable to determine which injury was the killing blow. His body was left to rot. Five days would pass before anyone would notice the smell. Now, that's one theory. Another theory is that the pug, Napoleon, became jealous of Jody. Because Travis was giving her attention, not him. Right. So then Napoleon went into Jodie and said, Hey, bitch, this is Jesus speaking. And she was like, Whoa, speaking pug. Whoa, Jesus. And he was like, you got to kill him. Make a sacrifice for your Lord. And Napoleon made him do it. Yeah. You look into Jodie Arias's butthole long enough and you see this. I mean, pugs. I can see a pug doing that. Yeah. Especially one called Napoleon.
1: Yeah. Small man complex.
0: But, just before midnight on June the 4th, as Jodie was driving her rented Ford Focus along Interstate 93, about 27 miles south of the Nevada border, she switched back on her phone. At 11.45pm, she called Travis, but he didn't answer. Of course he didn't. Because he was dead. A few minutes later, she called again and left a voicemail. Uh, midnight. Uh, anyway, right about the time you're starting to gear up. I know Leslie called you, so I already talked to her, so, uh, you can call her back if you want, but it's not necessary. Um, my phone died, so I wasn't getting back to anybody. Um, and what else? Oh, and I drove 100 miles in the wrong direction. Over 100 miles. Thank you very much. So, yeah, remember New Mexico? <clears throat> it was a lot like that. Only you weren't here to prevent me from going into the three digits. So, fun, fun. I'll tell you all about that later. Um, also, we were talking about, <clears throat> when we were talking about your upcoming travels my way, I was looking at the May calendar. Duh. So, I'm all confused. Um, but Heather and I are going to see Othello on July first, and we would love for you to co- accompany us. Um, I don't know when Team Freedom's event is, though, but you know it's on the list, so we could do um, we could do Shakespeare, Crater Lake, and the coast. So if you, make, if you can make it, if not, we'll just do the coast and uh, Crater Lake. But let me know, and I will talk to you soon. Bye. Late that night, Jody also phoned Ryan Burns, after she failed to arrive in Salt Lake City that morning. He had grown concerned. He called her several times, but it went straight to voicemail. I've been worried about you, Ryan said. Oh, I'm sorry, I took the wrong freeway. She told Ryan that while en route to Salt Lake City, she'd gotten lost and drove 100 miles in the wrong direction. As she drove, her phone battery had died and she was able to locate the charger. Exhausted, she said she had pulled it over to the side of the road and slept for a while. When she awoke, she had found this charger under the passenger seat. At 11am on June the 5th, Jodie arrived at Ryan Byrne's apartment in West Jordan, the suburb of Salt Lake City. When Ryan saw Jodie, he complimented her in a new look. Last time he saw her, she'd been blonde. She now had dark brunette hair. Oh. He also noticed her hands. She had two small bandages on her fingers. What happened? he asked. I work at Margaritaville. I broke a glass and cut my fingers. All right. Around noon, Judy accompanied Ryan to a prepaid legal sales appointment a mile from his house. As she pulled onto the main road, Judy saw red and blue flashing lights in a rear view mirror. Both she and Ryan pulled their cars to the side of the road. An officer approached Judy's car and said, Your license plate's on upside down. Oh. Huh? And she just went, Oh, my friends must be having a joke with me. She gave the license and the registration to everything, but everything else was in order and he let her go. He's like, just make sure you correct that. Fast forward to June the 9th now. Travis has been decomposing five days in his shower. Somehow, unbeknownst to his roommates, who were living in that house, yeah, they'd figured he'd already gone to Cancun. Now, Mimi Hall has grown very concerned. She'd been in regular contact with him about the trip. Yeah. She also knew about his crush on it and knew he was often near enthusiastic to reply to it. A group of Travis's concerned friends come to the house and talk to Zach Billings, one of his roommates, who retrieved the key to Travis's room. Upon entering, they are horrified to see blood all over the place, and they make their way into the bathroom and find Travis's corpse. Now, the conditions in the room, he's been watered, he's decomposing, so he's swollen, and he's beginning to mummify. Oh my God. The frightened friends run out and immediately contact 911. When asked if anyone, they knew anyone who would do harm to Travis, and all the, of them said uh, Jodie Jody Arias. Meanwhile, Jodie had concluded her mini-vacation in Utah. She returned the Ford Focus, although it had 2,800 miles added to it, red stains in the front and back seat, and the floor mats were missing. Jodie told the rental clerk that it was from her spilling a cup of fruit punch and offers to pay for cleaning, which would unfortunately make the car unusable as evidence later. She returned to Eureka and continues on with life, and routinely emails and texts Travis before his body is found. Jodie made an appearance at Travis's funeral, using any excuse to play the morning ex-lover. And all the friends were like, what the fuck? You know, we know it's her, But she'd always make it about her. She'd be crying, you know, Travis, I love him. Meanwhile, back in Mesa, Detective Esteban Flores and his crew were investigating the shocking crime. Amongst the chaos of the room, they discover plenty of incriminating evidence. A bloody handprint, several strands of long brown hair matted with blood, a 25 shell casing, and a camera in a washing machine. Now, tests done on the blood finds that it's not just Travis's blood, there's blood from an unidentified female mixed in, and the hair is more than likely from the same mystery woman. Now, the camera had been put in the washing machine with the bloody bedsheets, and turned on. Now, the camera's fucked, but the SD card is still intact. Oh! As Detective Flores starts hearing the name Jody Arias continually pop up during his investigation, on June the 10th, who should call him while he's interviewing some of her friends? But Jody herself. She quickly mentions her and Travis used to date, and but were still close friends, and when she'd heard he had died, she knew she had to help any way she could. Intrigued at the idea that his prime suspect had just called him directly, Detective Flores asked Jodie what she knows about the crime. Um, I know he was murdered and there was lots of blood. That's it. The fuck? At the lab, computer forensic specialists are able to access the SD card and retrieve the deleted images. Detectives are shocked to see that not only are the pictures of Jody Arias timestamped on the murder date, but there appears to be photos taken of the murder itself. Oh! So what had happened Les? there's a picture of Travis sort of looking out from the thing, where it looks like she said, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. And she stopped the picture. She's then dropped the camera, and it's taken a couple of pictures. Mm. Smart. Soon the lab results would conclude that the blood and hair samples did indeed come from Jody. She had willingly sent a sample as investigators told her that as someone who had spent time in the home, they needed to rule her out. They had seen enough and quickly reached out to authorities in Eureka to help apprehend Jody. On July the 15th, Jody is picked up by a police officer to her grandparents' home and is taken to Sissacue County Sheriff's Office for questioning, where an eager Detective Flores waits, having travelled all the way from Mesa. What would follow would prove to be one of the most bizarre interrogations he'd ever taken part in. Now, you can see this um, on YouTube, and it is fucking weird. At first, she's dead nice to him. She explains the road trip to her. She explains that she went to Utah, but she did get turned around and went 100 miles in the wrong direction. And she had to sleep in her car, and then continued on in the right direction. Through all this, she's fucking confident, not concerned that she's being questioned. She's just like, oh, no, 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 no. He points out that there's still an 18-hour window that's unaccounted for. Now, she tries to come up with any reason she can for this, and he confronts her with the photos, saying this is your foot. And she's still in denial, looking at one photo of her completely nude and posing, you know, the one we've seen. Mm -hmm. She states, huh, that does kind of look like me. She continues to insist she was never in Arizona on that date, as Detective Flores officially arrests her for murder of Travis Alexander. Before leaving, she has one last question. She says... I know this is a really trivial question and will reveal how shallow I am. But before they boot me, can I clean myself up a little bit? He says, no. He left the room. right? So She's in the room on her own. She starts talking to herself, quoting scriptures. Starts scolding herself for not putting on makeup. She's like, you didn't put makeup and do your hair, Jodie. Dumb are you, Jodie? She digs through a trash can and then does a headstand on the floor and then sings White Flag by Dido and Oh Holy Night to herself. It's never been proved if she knew she was being filmed, but she has got quite a nice singing voice. Soon she's booked in the county jail, and that's the mugshot of her where she's smiling. She has some mum in the first phone call to Google her name. Judy is brought back in the next day to be questioned again. The first night inside has obviously affected her spirits, but it also has provided her with time to rethink her story. At First she was put in with Sissacue County Detective Rachel Blaney in hopes that she would feel more comfortable talking to another woman about what happened. This didn't work and she was really unresponsive. So Detective Blaney says, do you want to talk to Detective Flores again? And she's like, yeah. When he came back in, Jodie has a new story. She was a Mesa, but after her and Travis's romp, a man and a woman dressed like ninjas broke into the house. <coughs> I'm not, Les, I'm not making this shit up. <laughs> From there, Jodie claimed they slaughtered Travis and threatened to do the same to her and her family. Detective Flores listened patiently as she spun this new yarn, calmly told her when she finished, Jody, if you're going to lie to me, you need to make it at least believable, because right now... It isn't. I need
1: to. Is this interview recorded? Or you yes. It, oh, yes. I'll be watching this later.
0: She protested and stuck to this story until she was brought back across the street to the Sissacue County Jail. It was the ninjas? Was Man the... and woman. She would remain in Sissacue County Jail until being extradited to Maricopa County, Arizona on the September the 5th. She would plead not guilty to the charge of first degree murder on the 11th. During the time waiting for her trial, she'd mainly stick to her new and true story at first <laughs> and would take all of the newspaper interviews, much to the dismay of her public defender, Kirk Nermy. Now, how we were talking about Casey before mm-hmm. and her lawyer, Jose Baez,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and how they were like, you know, fucking. Yeah. Kirk Nurmi could not fucking stand Jodie Arias. <laughs> He was like, "I don't want, I don't want this, I don't want this at all."
1: But I want no part of this. This no. <laughs>
0: now, while she was in prison, she was under control of the piece of shit white nationalist Joe Arpaio. Now, Joe Arpaio, during his twenty-four year tenure as sheriff, he proudly strove to implement white nationalism through a brutal assault on Maricopa County's Latino population. Oh my God. His barbaric tactics included extreme racial profiling and sadistic punishments that involved the torture, humiliation and degradation of Latino inmates. In 1993, he set up Tent City, which he described as a concentration camp. What,
1: like no no pretense, just like, yes, concentration
0: camp. As a temporary extension of the Maricopa County Jail for convicted and sentenced prisoners. It was located in a yard next to a more permanent structure. On July 2nd, 2011, when temperatures in Phoenix hit 118 Fahrenheit, Arpaio measured the temperature inside the tents at 145 degrees. Some inmates complained that fans near their beds were not working and that their shoes were melting from the heat. During the summer of 2003, when outside temperatures exceeded 110 degrees Fahrenheit, Arpaio said to the complaining inmates, it's 120 degrees in Iraq and the soldiers are living in tents and they didn't commit any crime, so shut your mouth!" He later claimed that the concentration camp remark had been a joke, pointing out what difference does it make? I still survived, I still keep getting re-elected. <sighs> he reintroduced chain gangs and even introduced female and juvenile chain gangs, but stated the latter two were purely voluntary. Courts repeatedly found Arpaio violated the United States Constitution but the sheriff often ignored their efforts to rein him in. You want to know how big a piece of shit he was? He received a pardon from President Trump in 2019. Yep. yeah, that's a big piece of shit. He was one of the first people to come out in support of Donald Trump's candidacy. Of course he yeah. was. But with a celebrity in his prison, he decided to play differently, and he ran a Christmas talent show. Jody won singing "Oh Holy Night again, and got herself a turkey dinner roll
1: oh. oh holy night the stars are brightly shining it is the night of our dear saviour's birth long lay the world
0: She was also confident she would soon be free, saying in one interview, "There's no way the jury will convict me. I'm innocent." Now Jody seemed very confident, but Kirk was less than optimistic. <laughs> of course, For the first few times he met her, he, and she acted obviously seductive towards him, he knew that she was going to be—it was going to be difficult. She was sort of like, "Oh yeah," you know, trying to flirt with him, and he's like, "No." No. Stop. You He's this big fat bull guy as well. So he's like, he's not interested in me. She would often ignore his advice as stated before. She would call him constantly as well. And often talking to him for two or more hours on matters unrelated to a case. He stated that she probably called him more than any client ever had. At one point she wanted to defend herself in the trial. It was allowed as long as Nermi would stay and advise much to his dismay. He was like fucking yes, let her do it. And they're like, You got to stay fuck shit. <laughs> the decision was overturned when it was discovered a supposed confession by Travis, admitting he was a sexual devant and a paedophile was found to be a fraudgery by Jody. Naomi remained his own main counsel, but a second attorney, Jennifer Wilmot, was brought it to the team. Now she will become deeply invested in this case and even develop a good rapport with Jodie who still defends her to this day. And she also believes that fucking ninja story. Great, fuck it. Yeah. Yes, so January the 2nd, 2013, the trial began. Jody's defense argues that she is a victim of domestic violence at Travis's hands and that he had abused her in every way possible. And that on the night of the murder, she had killed him in self-defense. For good measure, they would also note that Jodie on a few occasions had caught Travis masturbating to pictures of little boys in their underwear. Now, This is a fucking long shot, but it was made worse for the defence by their competition. Juan Martinez was the prosecutor from Maricopa County. He was known to be tough as nails and carefully combed the evidence in each case he was in. The Alexander murder being no exception. He had even been with detectives at the crime scene during the investigation. He argued that Travis was not the violent sexual deviant his ex-girlfriend now claimed him to be, but a man who was smitten with a dangerous woman who would unfortunately pay the price for rejecting it, and in return, Jody Arias must pay with her life. Now, this dude is fucking awesome. You can watch the court case. There's bits where Jody's like, "Well, I, 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 I I'm not sure." He's like, "You're not sure?" She's like, oh, "No." And it says something about the shower. She goes well, it's bigger than the cell I was in now. He's like, just so you know, we're not interested about where you live, okay? She's like, yes. He's like, we're not interested. We don't care where you live. He's like, okay. He's just fucking rails it all the time. <laughs> you can tell he's just pissed off with it. Now, Martinez's first goal for the state was to showcase the brutality of the murder, showing the crime scene photos, the gruesome post-mortem shots of Travis, and the pictures that had been taken of the murder. The violence of the murder was surely overkill if... Tra- Defence's claim of self-defense were true, and the defense wounds on his hands were also challenged this. Jody looked away during this portion of the case. His next step was to bring forward witnesses to Travis's character. His friends, including Mimi Hall and the Hugheses, who knew Travis to be kind and fun without a violent bone in his body. They would also testify that in the final months of his life, Travis had confided in them that he was becoming increasingly afraid that Jody would hurt him. Before resting the state's case, Martinez also calls Eureka police officer Kevin Friedman to the stand. Officer Friedman testifies about responding to the robbery call at Jodie's grandparents' home. He says while he's talking to them, Jodie arrives at the house. He says she acted strange, but chalked it up to the shock of the robbery. It was also shown that he had killed one week before Travis was murdered. Now, when the defence opened up its case, it started by calling Darrell Brewer to the stand. He would state that Jody was caring and responsible, and even developed a close bond with his young son. He would additionally note that despite their breakup, they still had a great friendship. Jody had even stopped to visit him on a way to Utah. Though Brewer would prove to be helpful in bringing some humanity to Jody, he had information that would prove to be just the thing that Juan Martinez needed for his case. Now he asked her about her visit, and he said she asked to borrow something, and he said yeah, she'd asked to borrow jerry cans. This would prove to be the bit of evidence that the prosecution needed, as it showed that Judy premeditated her stop at Mesa. Yeah. What other reason took them to hide a paper trial in Arizona would she have for this? The next witness to call to the stand was Lisa Andrews, a girl who Travis had dated after Jodie. Andrews would say that she was 18 when she had started seeing him, that she'd ended the relationship due to Travis being too sexually aggressive with her, as well as finding out he had cheated on her with Jodie. It was abundantly clear... Andrews was very uncomfortable discussing this subject. It was amazing in the court because he's like shows a picture of a French maid's outfit he's like, did he ever ask you to wear this? No. Did he ever call you a slut? No. A whore? No. A three-hole wonder? No. Did he ever say he wanted to stick it in your ass? No. So you had a pretty different relationship with Travis in this area. (laughs) (laughs) Martinez again would challenge the defense and asking Andrews for more about their relationship. It would soon come to light that Andrews was a lifelong Mormon and was incredibly naive when it came to men and sexuality. Yeah. For example, she didn't realize that men could get ere- erections spontaneously, and it was sometimes beyond a man's control. You know, it's kind of like sexually repressing people is a shitty thing to do. Yeah, But what the fuck do I know? I'm not going to heaven. However, Martinez would cause an uproar by showing one of the post mortem pictures that even if Travis didn't have the best impulse control, he didn't deserve what happened to him. Now, Andrews became immediately flustered, and one of Travis's sisters became so overwhelmed that she had to leave the courtroom. Now, Jennifer Wilmot immediately objected to the action, claiming it was a tactic for shock value. The defense's next move would prove to be quite an interesting one. They put Jodie on the stand. Now, she admitted that she did kill Travis, but proceeded to paint a story of degradation, hostility, and abuse. One of her first claims was from the day of the Mormon baptism, where she said she was pushed on a bed, forcefully sodomized. And she would claim that she was constantly being treated as a sexual object. She kind of was. Mm -hmm. This is why you shouldn't treat women like sexual objects, especially the crazy ones. JD would say that Travis was one of the who exhibited the increasingly disturbing behaviour, including the alleged instrument with the little boy pictures, and eventually violent outbursts and further verbal degradation, saying she was called a bitch, slut, whore, three-hole wonder, as well as worse. Three-hole wonder. <laughs> one instance of physical violence she would describe was the dispute over $200. He supposedly picked her up, shook her, and called her a useless bitch, before throwing her across a room and kicking her in the ribs. She would show a crooked finger on her left hand to the court, saying it had been broken as she tried to cover her face. Now, then they started reading out several of the raunchy texts and the emails, and then they played the phone sex conversation in front of his family. It's believed that she recorded this as a way to blackmail him, and it was around an hour long and very sexually explicit. During the time, she would act like she had been an unwilling participant in these kinky um, sort of games, despite seeming more than willing in them. She hid her face as the tape was played by everyone in the courtroom, which included her family and Travis's siblings. And they just were like, "This is uncomfortable." Then Jody would tell her story. She claimed on the night of the murder she was having a sexy photo shoot with Travis when suddenly the camera slipped out of her hands. In a rage, Travis lunged forward to attack her, berating her for dropping his new camera. He body slammed her and started beating her. Jodie ran to the closet to retrieve the gun he kept in there, thinking threatening to shoot him would stop him. This didn't work and Jodie was afraid he would take the gun and kill her. This is when she said fear and pent-up anger took over and she blacked out and the attacks began. After eight days, the defence concluded its examination. Martinez would seem almost too willing to start his cross-examination of Jody, and the viewing public definitely were ready for this face-off. Jody, who had a calm, stoic demeanour while being questioned by Nermie, quickly put a guard up against Martinez. He would start by asking about Jody's selective memory problems, and she would reply, Well, I don't know that it is a problem. It's not like I remember every single thing that's happened in my life. And he would qualify, what are the factors of this? What causes it? And then she just stared at him and said, Well, when men like you yell at me, when men like Travis yell at me. Well, he started countering some of her claims of abuse. She diligently kept journals her whole life, and Martinez would reference these journals. Many of the entries told of her devotion to Travis and how good of a man he is. One entry from the 26th of August 2007 would read, Well, I guess it's a good thing that nobody else reads this. Big oof. Because I write right now that I love Travis Victor Alexander so completely that I don't know any other way to be. Now, there's no entries stating abuse, finding out that he liked little boys, in any of the claims that Jodie made. She, of course, has to answer this, claiming that she chooses only to write positive things in her journals, stating she follows the law of attraction which he fucking takes the piss out of. <laughs> He'd then bring up her finger, and she'd display the finger again with a snide smile. Martinez then presents a picture of Jodie and a younger sister from around the time the injury supposedly occurred. In this picture, Jodie's finger is fine. Her response is, my finger is bent there. <laughs> Some people think she was just bending it weirdly. Another thinks she broke it herself in jail, but no one knows, really. During the duration of Martinez's cross-examination, Jodie kept her composure. However, this would change when the gruesome post-mortem shots came back into play. She became visibly disturbed and tried to shield her vision. Martinez calmly showed the photos. He said, take a look, you're the one that did this, right? And she said, yes, crying, but with no tears. He would also point out that most of the stab wounds were in the back. If he was being stabbed in the back, wouldn't you acknowledge that this was no longer being a threat to you? With this, the prosecution had no further questions. Jodie had been on the stand for 18 days. Uh, of course she had. So, the closing arguments. Martinez said, Jody and Arius killed Travis Alexander, even after stabbing him over and over again, and even after slashing his throat from ear to ear, and even after taking a gun and shooting him in the face, she will not let him rest in peace. Now, instead of a gun or a knife, she uses lies. Now, he had the courtroom remain silent for two minutes. This was the amount of time it took to end Travis's life. And Martinez told the courtroom to use this time to put themselves in Travis's shoes. To imagine the pain, the terror, to imagine helplessly pleading for mercy onto deaf ears. Many of the rooms began to cry, especially Travis's family. Nermy stood up for his closing statements and he said at this point he knew jody was going to be found guilty but his mission was to save her from the lethal injection he said before we talk about the evidence and what this case is about i think it's important to talk about what it's not about it's not about whether or not you like jody arias (laughs) (laughs) nine days out of ten i don't like jody arias this evidence shows you that either jody defended herself or didn't know when to stop, or she gave into a sudden heat of passion from a fight that began up in a bathroom. If Miss Arius is guilty of any crime, it's the crime of manslaughter, nothing more. At long last, her fate was in the hand of 12 jurors, and the area surrounding the Marikova County was definitely like a circus. Some people had even planned trips to Arizona to be there when the verdict was announced. Even the future Cheeto-in-Chief Donald Trump shared his curiosity on the verdict with the media. Finally, after four days of deliberations, on May the 8th, the jury reached its verdict. Jodie was found guilty of first-degree murder, and her face slowly dropped. It was apparent she didn't think this would be the outcome. The Alexander siblings cried in relief, and the eager crowd outside roared with applause. Many people were relieved just to see that Travis would be getting justice. But in a weird, strange mood, just after the verdict, Jodie was sit with local news for moments and to say... I went blank, I don't know, I feel overwhelmed. This is unexpected for me, but there was no premeditation on my part. She then says she hopes she does get the death penalty. as her family tend to live very long lives, and she doesn't want to spend decades in prison. I believe death is the ultimate freedom, and I'd rather have my freedom sooner rather than later. So two weeks later, the jury began to consider her sentence. Travis's siblings would make victim impact statements. His sister Samantha would have an especially heartbreaking testimony. She would mention through tears that their grandma Norma Jean passed away shortly before the trial began. She stated that she felt part of her death was from a broken heart. Travis was our strength, our constant beacon of hope, our motivation. His presence has been ripped from us. Judy would then make a statement herself, apologising for the lies she had told. At one point she pulls out a white t-shirt with the word Survivor in purple letters. (laughs) She says they're for sale and all proceeds will go to domestic violence charities. The balls on this woman. She then pleads for her life saying she will use her life in prison to do charitable works like helping other inmates to learn to read and write and donating hair to the charity Locks of Love. So, three days later, deliberations ended. Eight jurors chose death, four chose life. It was a mistrial. This could have been avoided by taking death penalty off the table, but the prosecution, on behalf of the Alexander siblings, wanted Jody's to pay with her life. So, on the October the 14th, 2014, the sentencing retrial began. Martinez again reminded the jury of tra- the pain Travis endured at Josie's hands, saying because of the cruelty, Jody deserved death. Naomi would argue it was a tale of infinite sadness, but that she only had reacted because she'd been reached breaking points. It would end in another deadlock with one juror voting for life in prison. In the state of Arizona, if a death penalty trial is deadlocked a second time, it can't be enacted. So on April the 13th, Judge Sherry Stevens sentenced Jodie to natural life in prison with no possibility of parole. She will be sent to Perryville Prison for the rest of her life. She was originally housed in a maximum security unit, but has since been moved to medium security. Jodie is now in her 40s. She works in the prison library, regularly sees her family, She has had a few boyfriends since being incarcerated and she has also taken up prison tattooing. A former cellmate Tracy Brown recalls Jodie being a bit scary, openly admitting to her crime, but friendly. And she nicknamed Jodie Songbird because her singing voice brought joy to her. She asked Jodie to tattoo her songbird on her so she could remember it. But after the bird was finished, Jodie would then sign her name on her body. So she's got a bird there and it says Jodie Arias in it. Kirk Nermy would write a tell-all book about his time as Jodie's defence attorney, which would get him disbarred. This is because several details in the book broke the attorney-client confidentiality. Jennifer Wilmot is still practising and still advocates for Jodie, appearing in a recent documentary to talk about why she believes Jodie didn't get a fair trial. Whatever.
1: Whatever, yeah.
0: In the summer of 2020, Juan Martinez was disbarred for inappropriate conduct. He was accused of leaking a juror's name in the Arius case to a blogger with whom he was in a sexual relationship with and then lying to investigators. Now Jodie used tried to use this as an appeal, claiming it was inappropriate with he was inappropriate with her, but it was rejected. Yeah, crazy. Martinez owned up to his actions but states The poor choices I have made have nothing to do with Miss Arius' brutal murder of Travis Alexander. And thus ends the tale of Jodie Arius. So, Les, was she guilty, or did ninjas do it? Yeah, she was fucking guilty, wasn't she? (laughs) She was fucking guilty,
1: but... I've got to say, right, Travis did not help himself. He did not. He really created that situation. He could have just... ...said, okay, we've had a bit of fun. Yeah. That's it now. Stop
0: it. But we've all had that partner who you know is a bit crazy but the sex is great and you're like i can't do this again but then you do and then you're like no no it's the last time yeah but basically jody was this little fucking fuck toy to him he was like i can fucking do all this dirty shit with her i can't do this with mormon girls yeah i can you know she wants to do everything you know he called her a three-hole wonder, once she to She'll do it in
1: the fucking ear. She's amazing. You know, he wants,
0: he's like, Oh, I'm gonna tie you to a tree and shove it up your ass. And she's like, Oh yeah, I love that. You know, with but he knows she's crazy. His friends are like, She's fucking crazy, you need to watch yourself. And he's like, Yeah yeah, but he can't stop having sex with her. He didn't deserve to die. Room. No, he didn't. No, God no. He but, didn't help himself, but Jesus Christ, he knew this chick was fucking crazy.
1: He really did. He was pouring gasoline on the fire there. Like that's that's what I get. It's like not to victim blame because, like you say, you d- didn't deserve to die, but it's like you created a, a rather, you well, created a fucking deadly situation for yourself. He did. I
0: mean, who do you think's
1: worse, Casey or Jody? Or well, Casey, like. That was a kid.
0: Yeah, I think Jodie... I mean, they're both really bad. I mean, if, bad. if... Say if you met Jodie, like, you didn't know anything about her, she was out, met Jodie, and she's like, falls in love with you, and she gets into all the folklore shit with you, and she moves in, and she just wants to be the doting wife to you, and you're like, okay, you treat her well. Yeah, she's gonna sort of go mental, at you, but could you, like, see her life with her? Sort of. No. But she's a three hole wonderless. Too fucking needy, man. By the so that's
1: like too high, mate. And it's like I like my fucking space. And like yeah. somebody you know me, I like my fucking space. And like somebody like that is not gonna give you space. Like if you were just there wanting to chill and it's like I just want five fucking minutes or I just wanna go down. You know, I want just go for a walk on my own. Oh, no. I and know. then you're like, it's you look at your phone and it's like, oh, she's called me a thousand times.
0: I know because I know that you have said to me many times, like, I'm not going to say the person's name, but they wouldn't leave me alone. I just wanted to watch fucking Country File. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: true, though. That's so why we watch fucking Country File. Like, this person's there, like, fucking.
0: Well, yes, guys, that was the end of our two party. What do you think? Who was worse, Casey or Jodie? Let us know. But yeah, we've had fun doing these two. I never want to fucking talk about Jodie Arias again. She's just. What? What? All this. All, me and Hannah going through all this research, over a hundred hours of research, just on Jodie Arias. Can you imagine how sick I am of this fucking woman?
1: About as sick as a fucking uh, lawyer was by the sounds of it.
0: Anyway, guys. <laughs> Thanks for tuning into us. If you do want to um, help us out, you can on Patreon. You go to www.patreon.com forward slash enter the dark. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can email us at enter the dark podcast at gmail.com. All the names of our patrons should be flying up the screen right now, or usually when I do this, they've already been up there because I'm terrible at editing, self taught. Um, but yeah thanks a lot guys Um, we've got check out the merch stand as well remember if you're on Patreon you do get 20% off that we're also the Discord which I think I may open up to everybody not just the Patreon soon so we can have a good chat on there it's cool this has been so long oh I can't wait for a break (laughs) I've been Yam. he's been Les take care and remember if you have got a crazy girl or boy who is good in bed just say no, you know, like Nancy Reagan said, just say no and, you know, if you look like Nancy Reagan it's going to be a lot easier to say no take care, Bye-bye. bye bye